Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm back. Sunday morning, so I'm fueled on iced coffee. Uh, that's the only way to go. Survive sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I love iced coffee. Uh, Nico will be right back. But, I mean, we can also just start without him. <laughs> he won't be upset. He'd probably be very proud. Yeah, but without Nico, who's going to take us on those wild tangents? That I no know, one right? <laughs> oh, I stuff. can do just a really good job about that, too. Don't, don't get me started. Oh, oh I've, listened on, enough for, I've listened to enough of the back issues to know. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are all very well versed at that. All of you. Oh, I, I mean, I'm going to spend at least a good five minutes thirsting over Jamie and how they need to stop making characters so hot. And like, you can't do that to me. You you can't. That's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. It isn't. Oh my God. Why and, is he so hot now? And also, why Jubilee? Why did she have to be the one to go first? Oh no, I know. She had, she literally had the... <laughs> best costume out of all of them and i'm just saying that because the glasses because the glasses were everything oh my god that's like, so good but like why jubilee like oh my god who is the oh I, i'm hard pro- i guess jubilee was the only answer because it's like do you kill the gay one no or do you kill the couple and like kill the couple even, kill the, yeah i guess you have to kill them both I, when it comes to the demise of uh captain britain jubilee i'll just quote empath and say hatch somebody who gives a fuck because <laughs> i don't <laughs> I mean, I know they were all probably, like, designed to die, but still, I'm like, no, her alternate baby show goes, gonna be so sad. Yeah, yeah. Also, I, I don't know, like, I, I was, like, mad at Opa Luna Saturnine for, like, trying to muscle in on Brian. Because, oh like, girl, God. you've known him for years. They've done it before. Oh, she's done exactly that, where she's been like, Brian, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't surprising at all. I, ju- I heard Arturo for, like, half a second, but I was barely, I was getting in my headphones. No, we were just, we were, like, rambling. We are waiting for you, boo. I'm good. Is Nathan back? I'm here. Okay, cool. Then I'm going to get us going on Excalibrats. Okay. Now, for my favorite book of probably the last couple of months, and like, so I let everybody read this one before me because the cover had me too excited. Excalibur number 13 by the incredible creative team of Teeny Howard and R.B. Silva really, for me, was like 20 years of fandom come true. I've been obsessed with Captain Britain forever and ever. I, growing up, always wanted like older kids to think I was cool, right? Because I never really got kids my age. I always wanted to be like my older cousin who my cousin Robbie was like five years older than me, six years older than me. So everything he was into, I got into. To this day, I can play To Be With You uh, by Mr. Big on guitar because I wanted to be cool like my cousin Robbie. I can do one of the guitar parts and vocal lines from More Than Words by Extreme because I wanted to be like my cousin Robbie. And so I always just wanted the slightly older kids to think I was cool. Now that led to an interest in comics that I was told were like, oh, that's the Holy Grail. And like when I say comics, I was told like, you know, I'm talking like I'm like a 
schmuck reading Wizard Magazine at like, you know, nine years old in the back of the comic shop, Zap Comics in Sayreville. And I'm like, I have to get my hands on this back issue. And, you know, over time, I developed an interest and an affinity for Alan Moore and Alan Davis's Captain Britain. And I think, you know, Nathan, one of our first ever conversations, I was like, and you can say whatever you want to me, but you just can't insult Captain Britain unless you're calling oh him God, dumb yeah. because he is pretty dumb. And like, that is that is my relationship with this this fandom is I am like Jean Grey and, you know, by extension, Logan first. And so by extension, the Summers and Emma and, you know, everybody like that. Great people. Love them. Big fans. But my number two are the Braddocks and specifically Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Jamie Delano era, uh, Captain Britain, Marvel, uh, Mighty World of Marvel, um, the Daredevils, you know, those eras. That's my Captain Britain. And it's a lot of people's. It's a really beautiful omnibus that I hope gets reprinted in light of all of this. I think it's up to like $600 sometimes when I see it. And it's just, it's unreasonable. But this this issue was clearly Teeny Howard saying with authority and with passion and vindication in her voice that there is a way to find a, there is a way to tell a story where Saturnine is a manipulative psychopath and uses her sexuality to her advantage. But you know what? It's not gendered. It's only gendered because the hero had to be Brian. This reads exactly like an Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Jamie Delano, Captain Britain comic. But instead of Betsy being the sexual pawn, Brian is the sexual pawn. And instead of Betsy being weak and always in distress, even though she's a powerful psychic, Brian was weak and in distress, despite being a superhero. This was, I, I'm so glad I waited to read it till I read everybody not like it on the internet, because then I knew kind of what I was getting into with it. This was my pick of the month, maybe my pick of the last three months. I was so fulfilled by this issue. I would rather other people talk first because I'm just going to be glowing. Well, I, one thing I want to get into about this issue that I thought was really interesting was the tension between Betsy and Brian. Yes over, you know, the mantle of Captain Britain. And all I could think about, and I, I actually pulled up, you know, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 256, Ooh. which was... Um, Psylocke becoming Lady Mandarin. Psylocke because the three... Very important. Of, uh, Acts you know, of Vengeance. By, by Chris yeah. Claremont and, and Arthur Jim Lee. Jim Lee, which was absolutely, I mean, probably one of my favorite three issues, all of X-Men hit. Like, I absolutely loved those, those three issues so much when I was a kid. Um, it just really burned a hole into my into my mind and i realize now in in hindsight that was really where i that was the first time i ever saw jamie braddock right that, that was mm -hmm. the, the first peak i oh got oh my god race car driver jamie <laughs> lol car driver jamie. yes and so i went back those pages and when uh and betsy and brian are like fooling around and they're like you know it's like after school they're in their like private school uniform and they're you know playing around with like sick and then in, in you know from one panel to the next now they're like is you know, heroic, you know, barbarians with swords and stuff. And this is what that's about. And that dynamic of this. And I just want to say, I mean, I really think what Tinny's doing, and I'm on the record with having, you know, my, my, my quibbles with some of the pacing and whatnot, but she's really stripped uh, Betsy down to Betsy. And I brought this up recently about how you know, now I see a delineation between Betsy and Quan, and, and, and that just keep going. And I'm, I'm happy to see that because this is really is Betsy going back to that Betsy. Uh, from X Men 256. That, that was yeah. my, my thing. I like, totally it reads like that. I didn't love this at first, but then when I went back and reread it a few times, I was like, wow, this is so classic. Like, 
like Betsy is always sort of been in the shadow of first Jamie because he was the successful race car driver and then Brian because he came Captain Britain. Um, It was like going back to that first time she became Captain Britain, like there was just so much she wanted it because she wanted to make that name for herself. She was tired of living in Brian and Jamie's shadow. She wanted to make a name for herself. So much of her early X-Men run was dependent on she wanted to prove that she was more than this, you know, upper class posh British ladies that she was a warrior at heart. So I, I really loved it going back to that because we really haven't seen a lot of Betsy go through a lot since she got through her got her original body back. I know the first few appearances after the hunt for madripoor arc she was shown you know despondent because she's like wait what do i do i'm back in my original body but like we really haven't seen her journey to rediscover who betsy is and not who betsy Quanin is and i think this was just like this vital piece of her realizing that and going back to that old sibling dynamic that they used to have and trying to find a new status quo in that sibling dynamic. well and the other thing that that it makes me think is who's betsy beyond that right because she can't be Psylocke right? Like, Wanda took that name. So what's left of Betsy that isn't, you know, clear answer to that yet? And her destroying the amulet of right, you know, may have locked the Captain Britain more in place for her for the time being. But it does make me feel like eventually she won't be Captain Britain. And who is she going to be then? Now, I do really... So, uh, it is about siblings and it is about legacy and it is about lineage. Speaking of siblings, legacy and lineage, I can't help but notice number one, Jamie is in Sinister's fucking cape. (laughs) Yes. Jamie really is the entire issue in the cape that he got from Sinister in Hellius. Yay! Because he wanted the cape. Well, because he looks fabulous in it, but... His whole outfit, his whole outfit, dude. I love his outfit. And, you know, it's... It's sort of the magic of Captain Britain that, you know, I think my favorite thing in the world would be if Mad, Mad Jim, LOL, if Jamie was, because Mad Jim is basically a, Jamie's basically a Mad Jim stand-in, but oh, that's absolutely. neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, it would be really fascinating to me if at the end of all of this, there's a bunch of open jobs and somebody's like, so Jamie, what are you going to do? And Jamie's like, um, I think I want to be Captain Britain. <laughs> oh no. Like I would, I would just die at that. Jonah, how do you feel having because I remember like I got you into Captain Britain with this is my guy this is my hero and you were like okay and then I was like and now he's not my guy anymore like within four months of you starting Captain Britain Betsy became Captain Britain and they're making this big deal that she's gonna get you know stabbed a lot or something I want to know how do you feel about the dexterity of the lineage of Captain Britain as it is a transformative idea through Teeny Howard's Excalibur run I am very fascinated by it's almost an old school new school kind of thought where Opal Luna Saturday nine says you're not you're just a pretender you're a fraud if you weren't given the choice between the amulet of right and the sword of might and i think that's kind of fucked up if you don't think about well betsy wasn't given a choice it was either become captain britain or let morgan lefay rule over with a dark captain britain and it's well what did you want what did you what did you expect out of this choice and opal and saturn i understand she's doing a job she's a hard-ass bitch and <laughs> she's right she has a job to do and there is an order in a specific way to go about things but it's a very old school kind of thought that if you don't have the choice you're automatically a pretender just because you picked the amulet doesn't mean britain picked you i was really interested in just an echo a sentiment that was said before of the identity of betsy where she kind of lost 
lost herself in that, well, she's no longer Psylocke because Quanin took that name and she was Captain Britain for a little while before this. And now she was given thrusted upon this mantle and having to be Captain Britain only for Brian to say, no, I want my old job back. Thanks, sis. <laughs> and what does she have left? She's kind of, you know, beautiful purple hair, a model, maybe, in, you know, some combat training and what else? What else is she but a super spy genius psychic Pilot. model? What Pilot. else is there for her? She's like, she's the Barbie of the X-Men. She is not a genius. She got a score of two for intelligence. All of this said, she absolutely pulls off one of the greatest gambits I can remember in recent X-Men history. Yes. Saturnine is quite truly supposed to be pretty damn near omniscient. So to pull this off really must have taken like one of the things Psylocke was famous for was she could like shut her fucking mind down and she could like focus oh, yeah. all of her her psychic energy into a single energy and she could keep her mind like telepath proof and let my precious brian i love him more than anything but let's face it there's not always a whole lot going on up there <laughs> in the first place he's very book smart i don't think brian has a lot of comments he's whatever no. the british equivalent of a himbo is yeah. like a himbo i guess <laughs> and um you know himbo. and then jamie is also a himbo i wouldn't ever want to know mm. what's up in jamie's head i would not ever want to know what is up in jamie's head so she pulls off this incredible gambit in which she actually has opal Luna Saturnine believe that in fact Brian might betray Betsy and go for Saturnine and we get number one the hottest Brian costume and I cannot dickingly tell you how long but then we get the starlight sword which is maybe the prettiest thing to ever happen <gasps> yes so this issue is meant to be reflective of 12 issues that came before it, tied together all of the elements of the crossover that it basically dictated, throws back tribute to 50 years of Captain Britain canon, all while forging new canon forward? I'm sorry, this is absolutely a, a gift, and I, I understand other people not loving it because maybe they don't have all of the same attachment to the same bits of context I do. So anyone's allowed to feel any way they want about it. But I really can see how this ties together 40, 50 years of Captain in Britain canon and forges its own thing. The fact that separately, Arturo and I referenced different pieces of canon. He went back and looked at Acts of Vengeance for Uncanny X-Men. I went back and looked at classic Captain Britain stories. This ties together a gorgeous amount of fiction and Teeny Howard shows a deftness of skill and a certain amount of effortless architecture to the narrative where I really feel like this is the best of Jamie, the best of Brian, and the best of Betsy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And this one's, I think this is like the tightest one issue uh, of Excalibur so far uh, from, yes. from this run. A lot happens in it. There's character development. Yeah, I was I was very impressed by it. And I love I love Jamie Braddock. And I, I'm very surprised by that because he's never been a big character for me. I think it's because Teeny's taking the time to develop him. It's yeah. because Teeny is saying, it's not okay to just say crazy is crazy anymore. She's actually paying attention to so like i mean this in the sweetest possible way i can't believe she's not british if she's not like mm -hmm. she is really paying attention to the lore of avalon and tying in the elements of european origins of tarot and i just really find myself impressed with the overall job she's doing creating i don't know there's just something about the ravages of spirit that still exist inside of betsy and this glorious rage that she's willing to unleash in the name of doing what's right it kind of reminds me of president rosalind from Battlestar Galactica where she was never meant to be president she happened into the role because no one else could do it and she was at a crossroads of her life and she makes a lot of unpopular fucking decisions but you know what her people survive wait oh my god can we talk about the scene where <laughs> they pull they get the starlight sword pulled out of whatever she's got it in her like sky scrying <laughs> pool <laughs> 
<laughs> like, oh my god, she's like sitting there on Brian's lap. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm just sitting there the whole time. I'm like, what would Megan say? Like, and like when she pulls the sword out and she's sitting there on her, I guess it's her bed, and she's like got it draped over her leg, and she's like, come hither, Brian. You know, take this sword; it'll be yours. You'll be Captain Britain again. I love your sexy voice. That you, it'll be yours. <laughs> I loved that. And here's the thing i'm completely with you i kind of do wonder what megan would think because here's the thing i don't know if anybody here's a classic excalibur junkie like me, me, me. right and now megan used to kind of flirt with kurt and she felt real bad about it yep. and then megan used to like really have a thing for colossus oh my god while, yes while brian was gone temporarily and that was a thing like she recognizes that creatures have feelings and she feels terrible about it because she and brian were in a weird place and he was always recovering from some kind of trauma but I think with them in a good place, I think she'd be like, good job, babe. You used that hot bod. I'm real proud of you. Let's go make another baby. Like, <laughs> I feel like that's the logical thing for Megan at this point. That's the woman she's become is aware of what it takes to save the day. She doesn't want the universe to fall because they have a kid. If the way it works is a little bit of making out with Opal Luna Saturnine, I promise you, Megan has made out with someone a lot grosser than <laughs> Opal Luna Saturn. I'm convinced Megan, Brian, and Pete have had a couple of... At night, oh, yeah, right? they probably did. I'm imagining it's a little MI eight and a half and a little MI nine. So um <laughs> I imagine Megan's pretty down with this. Uh, you know, I never thought of it because I I still like sometimes I still like when I in my mind's eye, I still imagine her as that that lady that she the the younger, more naive woman that she was in Excalibur, where she would just sit there and like pout and her face would be like sad elf face. But so but yeah, no, she's grown so much, especially since she came back. She like fought her way through hell. So yeah, she's a strong woman now. She would totally, totally get that. I want to pivot. Data page. The sword of might, place of origin, unknown, however, presumed from Galador. What? I had no idea. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Huh. I oh uh, what uh, I guess I because, didn't even think like, yeah, because we know cable sword is a light of Galador. But I'm not convinced that this is on purpose, honestly. I, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of data pages. There's some connection. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. I didn't even realize that. That's like, going to trip me up for a hot minute. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, I do love the page, though, like the history, you know, you know. Like, James Braddock, he really was screwing stuff up, wasn't he? I mean, he really had his hand in a lot of pots, didn't he? James, yeah, no, he was a piece of shit. And, like, yeah. that's something that I kind of feel like doesn't get touched on enough. Brian's dad was, like, Brian's dad was, like, the evil scientist in every movie who's like, no, I'm doing it for the good of the universe. I should be God. Like, it's <laughs> that guy. Wait, didn't he and, make the skin-eating bullets too? Then Genosha, and I believe the Warpies. They're, uh, they're oh, yeah. the Warpies are a remnant of James Braddock's experiments. You know, it wasn't until our little this whole little conversation that I've realized now. So I never read uh, the Cross Time Caper. I never read the Mad Jim Jasper run or, or story. I just know about. It. I kind of assumed Mad Jim Jasper's was Jamie Braddock or Jamie Braddock from a different, you know, from an alternate timeline or something. I, I just kind of lump the two of them together you know it is crazy that they both run uh two different kingdoms in other world though i mean it's it, it's just it's really interesting like they are so similar like you guys like you're saying Arturo, like and it's easy to, to almost think they're the same character because like what do they do with courtney ross and saturnine and saturnine with the nine so like like i could see like how maybe they almost wanted to make them some sort of parallel analog at some point well and here's the thing it's actually a little bit more that chris claremont wanted to use mad jim 
But because of sort of a gentleman's agreement with Alan Moore, he wasn't allowed to. So suddenly he has Jamie resurface with basically Mad Jim's personality and powers. And it was a really interesting way to circumnavigate not wanting to mess with Alan Moore during a time where that was something that people thought was an important thing not to do. And I think, and I still wouldn't. I mean, they <laughs> like, and you know, when they republish Miracle Man, it's as the original writer, he is not credited as Alan Moore. So I think it is important to note that, yeah, they are essentially facsimiles of one another. You can keep Mad Jim. I'm going to make Mad Jamie. Absolutely. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Like, I love the, I do love the, the weird transformation from, you know, like race car driving, like, you know, playboy, multimillionaire to like, bam, he's just mad now. Bam, he's always in briefs. <laughs> Ooh, Jamie. Now he's got Sinister Escape, too, so I'm like, yes. Now, here's something we haven't discussed at all. There's a bunch of Captain Britons, and uh, now there's one less. Mm. Tragically, in the course of Jamie being, you know, a little bit Jamie and all of that shenaniganery, we lost Captain Britain Jubilee. I would have been okay with Jamie taking them all out. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, the Captain Britain court thing was weird little detour. Um, curious to see what comes of it. But yeah, I can't say that I felt anything when, uh, when Jubilee died. I, I just did not care. I was like, no, those glasses. All right. She's such a fabulous design. I think that's the danger of killing off alternate reality versions of the characters. You don't care about them. Yeah. I did also, it wasn't until like I really stood back and thought about it. Guys, there was no Gambit, no Rogue, no Jubilee, no Richter. There was no Shogo. There was no Megan, no Pete. This really was a very tight cast of the Braddocks and Opal Luna Saturnine. Yes. In a way that we haven't seen from this title in quite a while. I mean, anytime they have an excuse to like have Jamie shirtless and pulling the of reality I, i'm good with it though so oh yeah no you'd have to be crazy not to like it <laughs> i want to see what happens with betsy and i want some clarity on what her power set is at this point because we brought up you know her telepathy earlier and, and i find it just interesting that she doesn't really use it for much more than a walkie-talkie at this point and yeah we're, we're just in a strange place with betsy on her uh on her continuum and i want to i want to see what happens and i am less worried about doug and more worried about the Braddock going into the, the tournament. I feel like we're going to be down one Braddock for sure. Mm, it kind of feels faded somehow. You come from like a different perspective a little bit with Captain Britain. You have a lot of like the classic knowledge. You have a lot of the modern knowledge. And it's that like British era that, I mean, I know you're currently reading the Delano trade. So how did you, you know, how did this all come together for you as somebody who's reading this disjointed picture of what Captain Britain means? A lot of the characters, especially since I've gone back and reread some of the older trades are, they're making a lot more sense to me. Um, like Betsy at first, without, without the knowledge of what Betsy's gone through, Betsy could read as maybe being spoiled or not knowing what's going on but she's really fundamentally a character that's going through this huge transformational period uh saturnine though i love the more you get to know her like the more you can see that not always the excalibur area like the original excalibur area wasn't always the standard of what she was because when i started reading comics like my first two comics were X, uncanny x-men 281 and excalibur 42 and i just like fell in love with excalibur and they were doing that whole big other world era epic right then so like that was my first exposure with saturnine but like when you go back and read more you just see how it all falls in line with everything 
not just that one small narrow view. And I really feel like you can see the gears turning in her head more and more as we draw closer to the end of Ten of Swords, or I guess the midpoint or something. I don't know. We're spending a lot of time getting the swords. Jonah, Excalibur, I, I've always told you how much I love Excalibur, how excited I am for Excalibur, and you know, that this is my book, blah, blah, blah. This is nothing like Excalibur. But in so many ways, it is a fulfillment of the dream of evolution for Excalibur. A mutant title, not really about mutes. You've read 13 issues of this book. Compared to where it began, with Betsy initially picking up her purple sword, how far, you know, comparing this to Betsy's psychic purple sword, and now we have the starlight sword, how has this 13-issue journey gone for you, and where has it taken you for these characters? We talk about a lot in the earlier issues of this Excalibur run that it was really the Betsy Braddock show, and I'm really happy that she's getting her due diligence and justice. I think this issue was probably the best Excalibur issue we've gotten this entire run. I think it's literally, it was just entertaining. It had everything you could ever want. She said, I'm going to give the gays everything exactly what they want. And she really <laughs> did. She really, 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 really did. Give it up to gay God. Woo! But I was probably the most entertained and fascinated between the relationship of Betsy and Brian, you know, being twins, one being a mutant and having to live on Krakoa, the other being the entire protector of Britain living on their Braddock Manor. It's a really interesting dichotomy and, and dynamic where they have to shift where you always see twins kind of always like almost conjoined at the hip and wanting to be close to one another and doing things together all that stuff but here you have these twins who are constantly being separated and constantly being pitted against one another that I was so interested in Betsy's anger at the situation her anger at Brian and Brian not understanding like why wouldn't she want to give it up that was my job first and it's like well no boo you <laughs> that's not her fault that you get tempted by every woman with long hair like I don't know where's where's some like blinder shades or something I don't know it was Jubilee doesn't need hers no she's dead yeah take hers um i was just really i was just so happy with this issue and really interested to and i'm still very interested to see where they're going to go with betsy and brian's story and obviously i'm now madly in love with jamie whether him being hot or him pulling the strings and just being like well let's just kill one of them then it's a fair fight (laughs) it was never going to be a fair fight jamie you can literally choose when when you do and don't want to kill them slash turn them into rats so i don't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's fine i i don't even know if i have anything else to more to say because it's just a really beautiful love letter to the betsy brian dynamic that i am still very interested to see works and i think it really does hit the idea that brian is the himbo because we see him here be a loving brother we see him here be a sex toy we see him here be a soldier like this kind of hits all of the action movie tropes but for some reason having betsy secretly in charge of all of it makes it much more believable i expect this kind of quick thinking from betsy and the fact that they were able to outsmart an omniscient person in their world of omniscience to me is a really important step in exploring why betsy deserves to be captain brit a lot of people have said that they think she either walked into the role or lucked into the role and i'm here to say i don't agree i think betsy's earned the role being captain britain at one point took transforming your body like literally brian's body would grow betsy knows all about bodily transformations betsy has sacrificed sacrificed her life multiple times. One time, through the Siege Perilous, the actual stone that Roma and Merlin connect to the Captain Britain magic itself. I feel like there's very little argument to be made that Betsy isn't a true Captain Britain at this point. It was in the grand tradition of X-Men fairy tales, that perfect narration that goes on either side of it, and having Brian and Betsy return together made such a bold statement to end this story on. I just want to see more of the sword. I want to know what the Starlight Sword can do. Like, it's made out of 
this almost like nexus of realities like i'm like what can it do besides like glow and look beautiful draped over a saturnine's bucks of me bosom uh but i want to know bucks what it can do. Bosom. I love it. <laughs> and, and also where did she pull the sword from i like how you phrased that question before nate <laughs> excalibur issue 13 writer teeny howard penciler and inker rb silva colorist Nolan Woodard, and editor Jordan White. There was a lot in this one, and I kind of want to start out by asking, there's kind of a a bait-and-switch kind of situation. Was anyone else tricked? Because I definitely was tricked by this. Yeah, I was definitely tricked. There, Jeez, there was just so much. I, I mean, the whole section after Betsy destroyed the amulet and then being put into her cell, I was just like, did that just really happen? And then I turned the page and it's like, oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> I have to say, I wrote this like whole series of like notes and like possible questions based on the fight between Betsy and Brian. And then like, as soon as they're like, oh no, we faked that on purpose. I'm like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So in the very beginning, there is less than a warm welcome of the Braddock boys. They, They definitely, with Betsy, she's very cold towards them, which before we knew about the trick, that definitely had me like shocked. I'm like, I would have thought that she would have been very happy to see her brothers. Yeah, she was just like embittered for no reason. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that she saw was was uh, the Sword of Might, which she had helped Brian hide. So, I mean, it, it, if she was, obviously she was playing, but if if she hadn't been it would make sense that she'd be upset seeing it because of the way that he had originally uh, reacted to it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Something that really stood out to me is during their fight, I wonder if there's a few things that definitely ring true about how Betsy feels like she has earned the title of Captain Britain. Uh, Robbie, what did you think about the fight itself and what was said during the fight? Well, I definitely agree that even though it was a bit staged, that there were a lot of truth in what was being said. Like, I definitely agree with you saying that she has earned the title because she's worked her she's worked her ass off lately to get where she's been. And I really like from like the art perspective, I really like a lot of like the kind of like the shots that they did with like the different like poses in the fight. Yeah. That was one of my favorite parts. The 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 entire exchange, the entire fight culminating into uh, Betsy retrieving the Starlight Sword is just so, so beautiful. The few panels of Opaluna Saturnine drawing the sword itself out of a scrying pool. And it's very, very reminiscent of Yugo Shimizu about it in, in its structure. I only wish the line work had matched, you know, to a T, but like really really just the the this entire issue just flows and has such beautiful movement to it absolutely what did everybody think about the whole captain britain corps pretender captains uh attacking jamie 
I think it was foolish as all hell. <laughs> he, he controls reality. Uh, once, once somebody was screaming for a guard, I was like, that's one of them. That's not Jamie. And sure enough, you know, buff as all hell, standing there holding the strings of reality tied up and with the Captain Britain core. It's like, yeah, that was, that was obviously going to happen. I think the choice to kill Jubilee was arbitrary. Um, and poor Jubilee, rest in peace. Well, thankfully it's not the real Jubilee. Thankfully so. it's not the real Jubilee. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that I was not expecting them to just keep chasing after Jamie, even after that. They almost seemed like they were mindless zombies just stuck in one one frame of mind that they can't they, they can't get themselves out of. You know, for that matter, when Brian finally draws the Sword of Might and he's playing along with Jamie's like games, calling him All Mine and uh, Captain Avalon, he's like, Captain Avalon, it shall be. You know, that seems to be the result of the transformation into, I suppose, a captain or a Lionheart, except for Betsy. Betsy is the outlier in that case. So, so yeah, so Betsy is the outlier, especially after she destroys the amulet. That That's a huge change for the the status quo of things now there's no true amulet of captain britain so i'm kind of wondering how, how things are going to work without that going forward that's something that saturnine really kind of talks about right before that happens saying that the britain corps has always been the exact same where either merlin or his daughter present the choice between the amulet and the sword and Betsy points out that she didn't have to make that mm. choice and Saturnine just kind of like does a backhanded compliment almost about it and Saturnine and Betsy have definitely had a contentious relationship throughout the last couple issues what do you guys think about how Saturnine versus Betsy has really become how much Saturnine truly just does not like Betsy and does not find her worthy it definitely shows that Saturnine has her own um, her own position in mind. She's she's more focused on she's more obsessed with Brian than with the idea of an actual Captain Britain. I believe. Oh, for sure. Just again, speaking about Saturnine and Saturnine and Brian's history, should Saturnine have been suspicious that Brian is suddenly actually falling for her wiles? I guess. You know, I think that's part of the delusion is believing that, you know, her, the the extremes of her feelings towards Brian are valid and justified, and of course he'll feel the same way. You know, I feel like there's, there's a delusional aspect to it, where she would happily and wholeheartedly believe that, because, you know, again, this is him at this point already having wielded the sword of might, already having played along with Jamie's wiles, calling himself Captain Avalon. So he's in something of a vulnerable, maybe not entirely fully autonomous state, which is unfortunate. I think Saturnine was kind of trying to take advantage of him, which is kind of an ugly read. No, I would agree that Saturnine was definitely trying to take advantage of him in this situation. How about you, Robbie? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I definitely uh, agree with a lot of that. Because um, the way that Saturnine always looks at Brian, it's a very like, it's like a very idealistic point of view that she always has 
him siding with Betsy and like betraying her that's like I genuinely think that's the one thing she would not expect in any of this especially when she mentions her writing that prophecy how she tried to make it like a certain way so it wouldn't I guess like backfire on her and it still kind of (laughs) did you know and let's let's also not forget the data dump page for the starlight sword says that any holder of the blade steps into the role of saturnine's knight omniverse's protector and defender of the omniverse uh so that is the ultimate last laugh not only did you get over on saturnine but now you are her most closely positioned defender and she (laughs) hates you so much she just hates you so much (laughs) yeah i love it i love it (laughs) i'm kind of surprised that she would think that brian would just abandon his marriage with Megan for her, especially with I might you. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm down for elf ears, but incredibly power all all, all powerful tall blonde. Uh, fine, all right, fine. <laughs> I'm not even interested in blondes, like, nine out of ten times historically, but fine. Well, from my understanding, even, like, in the older books, Saturnine kind of always disregarded Megan, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and think think of how she must look at most mortals, you know, granted mutants are now immortal, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, just to look at somebody who is not the Omniversal Magistrix, uh, there has to be something of like a peon, you know, complex that she's giving to everybody that's beneath her. Yeah, I mean, especially since the only people that she's surrounded with are her priestesses. Yeah, I can understand that could corrupt her view of anybody that she interacts with. I mean, all of Ten of Swords starts out with her basically having a star sacrificed for her to prophesize the future. That's right. I think that this issue was pivotal in displaying the fact that Saturnine's prophecies can be challenged and can be overturned in a sense, especially as I'm sure we all have read it by this point, but won't be discussing it until next week, sadly. Uh, X-Men, uh, X of Swords, Stasis, uh, the drawing of cards there as well. I feel like there is so much to this issue demonstrating that Saturnine's will can be overturned. Yeah, absolutely. And that she may be all powerful, but there is still a danger to the other world and to her power from these other mutants. And she needs to have a champion and someone to have the Starlight Sword. What did you guys think about how she was trying to manipulate the situation where she was trying to pit the Braddock twins against each other? to try to have the outcome that she wanted. You know, I think I think that it would have been more successful if she had gotten to Brian further along before his desperation kind of like cleared up a little bit regarding the situation. Like I'm thinking back to like the first volume of this run of Excalibur when he just like shows up at the lighthouse just to like look longingly on like his sister doing the job and then like runs away into the night. Like I feel like that would have been a very successful turn of Brian towards uh, doing her business to retrieve his job back but like, i think yeah 
Like right after he recovered from being the Black Knight? Like right after he recovered from being the Black Knight, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was pretty broken at that point. So yeah, I could I could see that as a... Um, as what would have been a better time to sh- strike. <laughs> and you know what? I think, I think personally, that was a dynamic that I saw beginning to unfold that I wasn't particularly fond of. This whole scorned Brian and obstinate Betsy dynamic that I wasn't particularly fond of. That I think this was a one issue hand wave away of that fallout from his time as the Black Knight. That was oh no we're over this he is his own thing now he is not the Lionheart but Captain Avalon and Betsy still has the job and everybody's yeah everything is copacetic there's one thing that I just noticed with the art that I thought was uh, pretty interesting towards the end when Brian mentions that he's a married man when you look at like I guess the lighting of like the green and how it's like and it like hits Saturnine's dress interesting enough like when he says that like it kind of like I'm not sure if that's like a reference to them acknowledging Megan because she's known for green oh yeah let me look Hmm. yeah and it's right when he says that he's a married man and then suddenly the light is like hitting her outfit to make it green instead of the white that she's always wearing yeah Yeah. I think it it could also be a green with envy yeah oh yeah yeah. oh yeah speaking of outfits can I just say that Jamie looks amazing with Sinister's cloak? <laughs> oh, and here I was thinking we were going to talk about how good the Captain Avalon outfit is. <laughs> I mean, that one is pretty amazing too. So, like the asymmetrical I... gold cowl and the weird like bricklay pattern of the cummerbund. Like the whole thing is just a lot. Oh yeah, but it really works with with Brian's uh, body type. So yeah, oh, for sure. Oh yeah. My boy's built like a chupa choop. <laughs> Excalibur 13, written by Teeny Howard, with art by R.B. Silva and colors by Nolan Woodard, letters by VC's Ariana Mar. So this was our Betsy and Brian issue, as they have to go figure out how to get their swords, which are already in Otherworld. We're not going to go too long on this. Uh, Other groups have covered this more extensively, but thoughts on Excalibur 13, Raven? I loved it. Oh, it was a wonderful little roller coaster. I I loved it. I thought it was beautifully done, beautifully uh, colored, drawn, and I I loved the storyline because I was like, no, how dare you? Oh, no, you can't. Yes! (laughs) Like, I loved the little roller coaster ride that I got to take reading that, and I thought it was was well done. Yeah. Rod? So this issue, I, first, the art is beautiful. Um, So that's my favorite part of it, probably. But until the end, I was so mad at it, and I didn't like it because I was Mm -hmm. like, no, no. (laughs) I was like, like, Teeny, what are you doing? Why are you making Betsy so weak? Why are you doing this? And I still don't know how much of that was playing on and how much was actually truth between her and Brian, Betsy and Brian. But the ending, I'm glad it happened that way. I'm glad that she got the the most beautiful sword, Mm -hmm. um, even though she's probably going to die. But I just, I'm... Teeny had me for a second. I was about to be like really mad at her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but well here's here's the thing oh my god so if she does die if that sword is destroyed it's made from the walls of the starlight citadel which is the 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 gateways to so many other realms what happens if that gets destroyed or severely damaged does that damage the doorways see i think that's why saturine didn't want betsy to take it because she doesn't trust betsy to survive Mm. also betsy she has betsy matched up against iska she might have brian matched up against an easier foe exactly Mm -hmm. exactly Oh, I can't wait. I honestly so, cannot wait. I, I like this issue. I thought it was um a little more difficult to get enwrapped in the story because you knew that things were slightly amiss as you were reading it. But another beautiful issue. Um, I am so happy that the X line is getting all of the great artists right now. Um, you know, so pretty. In these three that we're talking about, you know, Rod Reyes, um, RB Silva, and Phil Noto is just an embarrassment of riches. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's half the line, you know, like that's not even counting, you know, other artists we've been seeing like David Valde on Pepe Larraz, um, Lionel Yu. So this, the art has been so good on these. Um, mm-hmm. I like how they found an essential, but non Krakoan role for Brian. I like yeah. that Betsy was openly willing to pimp out her brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she really was. I mean, I'm not shocked by that. He needs to do something, right? A lot of vibes reminiscent to one of my favorite OG Excalibur issues, Excalibur 55, which was a big Betsy, Brian, Jamie, Saturnine story. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like the way that chaotic, neutral Jamie fits in with the family. Like that the <laughs> three of these, them, can do a mission together as brother and sisters and the roles that they play in it. Mm-hmm. I dislike the way that they trick Saturnine. I thought it was a really weird, quick reversal yeah. that having just seen Saturnine flex so strongly that she turned death into a chibi now (laughs) having her like tricked by you know and getting outsmarted by betsy dangling her brother in front of her to steal two swords like just felt it felt like they were minimizing a character that they just tried to op two weeks earlier um which felt a little weird honestly it it felt truthful though because even even the strongest person, even the strongest woman, I can't even believe I'm saying this, even the strongest person <laughs> occasionally falls for the D. And she she I mean, got distracted and she got overly confident and went, yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to go hit that. <laughs> I can get this. That is her kryptonite. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Right. I mean, she does love Brian, which I don't understand. But she does love Brian, so I mean, hey, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> she got confident, she got played. Mm-hmm everyone and welcome back to X's for podcast i am evelyn known as the comic canary you can find me at uh, comic underscore canary at twitter and instagram hello i'm raven the jill of all trades you can find me as dame red bento just type it in and you can find all my social media hi folks i'm arturo uh that's mr toy box on twitter and instagram hola i'm rodders you can find me at hawkstrod that's h-a-u-x-r-o-d on twitter and instagram Awesome. So today we are going to be discussing the next chapter in the Ten of Swords, which is X-Men issue 13. Writer Jonathan Hickman, inker Muhammad Azar, colorist Sunny Gao, letterer VC Clayton Cowles, penciler 
Mohammed Azar and editor Jordan White. So this was definitely a departure from the, I guess, the formula that we've been seeing. What did you guys think about getting more background information rather than just the sword quests? That that was my favorite thing about this issue. Uh, you know, in rereading it, it's almost like not that much stuff happens. Apocalypse got healed and he got his sword, right? So like in real time, it's pretty, you know, pretty straightforward and it and it does fit with the sword quests that we have been on. But what I really enjoyed about this, what it, what made this such a standout issue for me was that we continue to peel back layers of this backstory of, of Okara and Arako and of Apocalypse and his children and his wife. And this was just such a, so much of that. And and I've, that's the part of X of Swords or Ten of Swords that I've really been enjoying is anything that has to do uh, with that side of the equation. So this was like, uh, you know, like a Christmas gift. This was amazing. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Probably a lot of people's favorite part was Genesis, like Apocalypse's wife. Just, I mean, how badass she was i mean she's she's a badass black woman and yeah. basically all of the i mean i'm assuming all of the basically all the women in the uh, the four horsemen are basically black women which is pretty awesome if you think about it and i just love how she's basically like the marvel's poison ivy but with magic and mutant powers because <laughs> she can control the plant life and how she told apocalypse that no you you stay behind on earth and get earth prepared because you're the weakest one so you have to stay behind and be better because you're not that great and giving how we know apocalypse like so far he's been always saying that he's the strongest one ever and then his own wife being like no you're not that great sit down go on earth ponder it and judge them and also judge yourself it was pretty great I love that Apocalypse doesn't even question that. He, he's not, he doesn't even contest that. You know what I mean? When she said, you're not strong enough, he's basically like, yep, true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no, like there is no, there is no question about it. It's, it's, you know, she was the strongest of them all. And yeah, just an incredible character. And I love that, uh, that she's Iska's sister. I don't think I knew that before reading this issue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I liked this book on some levels, but on, on other levels, I kind of expected more from it because I guess I got spoiled with the first couple of uh, volumes that I got to read. There was a lot more supposition. There was uh, more more sub talk and and there was just like more to it to really pull me in. And I felt sometimes the dialogue on this one fell flat or just left a lot up in the air and I was kind of hoping for a little bit more. But yeah, it was interesting to see how many other uh, mutants were so much stronger than apocalypse and and i mean they handed his ass to him without blinking so that should tell you yeah. something right there just saying yes, exactly <laughs> x of swords the 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 actual competition or whatever you the trial is gonna be i feel like a massacre almost because they're all stronger than apocalypse mm-hmm. and before they they couldn't really take apocalypse i'm so worried for, <laughs> for apocalypse i don't i don't think i would have going into this i would have been worried about him but i'm i'm actively worried for the character no i feel like I feel like with all of this, the amount of, um, I guess, attention Apocalypse is getting, I kind of figured he's probably going to be one. I'm, I haven't really mentioned it before, but I kind of figured he's going to be one of the ones that maybe have has died. Because even in um, the Excalibur covers that we're seeing after this event, we don't really see Apocalypse, you know? Mm-hmm. You know so, what would be really interesting if, and and somebody, I saw this like on Twitter, so I can't, you know, totally take credit for this, but uh, if, remember that Excalibur story a couple, you know, many issues back, but earlier 
this year where Rogue takes on Apocalypse's power. She was mm-hmm. like Rogue mm-hmm. Apocalypse for a hot minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever happened with that, right? Like that that mm-hmm. happened and it happened for the space of an issue and we never really circled back on that and we haven't seen Rogue anywhere. So I don't know. I mean, if Apocalypse has to go, maybe Rogue kind of, I don't know, becomes his uh, his avatar, so to speak. Oh, um, uh, that's true. I mean, because I mean, Rogue is definitely more durable, it seems like, than his, re- than his current avatar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's basically invulnerable to an extent. Yeah. I mean, this is this is rogue. She can absorb huge amounts of power. And like like they say, the longer she holds on, the more she absorbs. So yeah. So she could def- she could definitely pull what she what happened with Carol, which was obviously mm-hmm. terrible, but she could essentially get his entire essence and save him. But mm-hmm. that leads me to this question that I just thought of with what you guys have been talking about is should Apocalypse, like, would he actually be missed? Because really the only thing he tends to contribute is his wisdom. While yes, he's incredibly powerful, he has this mission, which is to save mutant kind. And up until Ten of Swords, he was content with what was happening and almost diminishing because with uh, Krakoa being this excellent island where um, they even say it in this issue where death is just reincarnated and those who are injured are healed automatically. Like maybe he should die with his mission being complete. Like let him rest. Okay, with- bite your tongue. No, <laughs> I, I will like- not hear this. I, like let's attempt fate. No, come I'm on. totally There's- with Evelyn. I'm oh, totally with Evelyn too. Guys, honestly, come on, they don't no. listen. The whole wait, wait, thing, wait, wait, the whole wait, thing wait. that this whole Donovan. <laughs> X has been about is making it so death is not something that's going to keep a character from developing or whatever. Now that death is happening, let's not throw out a really incredible character like Apocalypse. I really hope he survives. Oh, wait, wait, but wait, he's wait, always wait. been around. Give, give exactly. me a hot minute. Give me that's a hot minute. Don't, that's why you can't get rid of him because you can't just No, but that's whip why you get Apocalypse. rid of him. That's right. why you get rid of him. That's the whole thing is, remember, his wife is Genesis, the beginning of all. He yes. is Apocalypse, the end. End, and yeah. his children are horsemen. Yeah. Like there's, it's already been prophesied from the beginning that he is going to be the end. Yeah. So it could very well be that yes, he dies, but maybe he actually takes out like a good chunk of the baddies while he's at it. That could be his good final hurrah. And and him dying, he he leaves Krakoa whole, and the world is in one piece. And in a way, he ends up saving all of mutant kind by doing that. Yes. Exactly. Great. And yeah. to piggyback off of that, like, um, the this is all based off tarot. And the mm-hmm. tarot card death is always misunderstood. And it's what it really means is it's the end of something, but also the rebirth of something else. Mm-hmm. It could easily be what if Apocalypse does die, it's to help rebirth possibly the merging of these two continents, possibly the future of mutant kind. There could be beauty in his death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely think that because I mean I feel like I I honestly think Genesis is probably going to kill Apocalypse and they're going to have like because he got the lover card um, which is not in this issue so we're going a little ahead of ourselves but (laughs) remember Genesis is dead why do you say that now why wait no why do you say that we've been told that we have been told that she is dead no that summoner said that the summoner is a lying manipulative creep war confirmed war also said it though so who is 
is who do we think okay well i guess this is a little head but then who do do we think that the the helmet that's introduced in this issue it's a, it's annihilist right or what's annihilation yes. annihilation do we think annihilation just took her form then well i think that's mm-hmm. the whole thing is a night the the annihilation mask destroy it consumes people and and if they're weak it, it ultimately destroys them so it's it can only be worn by somebody strong enough to to bear it right kind of like yeah. kind of like the infinity gauntlet right with with tony stark right oh, yeah, yeah. too much power mm-hmm. or whatever um so i think genesis that's that's what happens is that she's the strongest one that and she's the one that takes on the mask what remains to be seen though is how much of genesis is left and how much of her is you know being consumed by annihilation it kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of malice you know our favorite mm-hmm. little mm-hmm. psychic true. psychic evil choker <laughs> yeah 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 well with given that then i would probably agree with raven that then apocalypse is is probably going to go out with a blaze, of, a blaze of glory and probably destroy the helmet and his wife, but in the process destroy himself and reunite the islands. And because if you think about it, in all of Moira's um, lives, Apocalypse is there. Mm-hmm. So the only difference between this life would be if Apocalypse wasn't there. Maybe that would make a big difference. True. Well, that and I'm I can't see Apocalypse simply letting his wife's form just sit there and be you know picked apart and absorbed by annihilation he i hate to even say this because i dislike apocalypse so much just as (laughs) as a as a person but he loved his wife he had deep feelings for her he didn't back talk her he didn't sass her when she says look you're really not the strongest here you need to stay on earth judge them you know get better yourself judge yourself like find your flaws and become stronger like he didn't even blink at that he knew that she was right so i don't think any man who has that much love for his partner would just go oh yeah it's okay if annihilation just sits there and eats away at their form and destroys every part of their essence i think he's gonna go in and go "Uh, yeah we're gonna handle some business here but it's probably gonna cost him dearly yeah i could get that just saying just saying (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm so worried about him. I mean, and I, and just like I want to give a shout out to uh, Mahmoud Asar's art in this, what I oh, thought yeah. was just absolutely incredible. So gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful lines, great colors, just just really, really good work. And and he makes he draws such a big, strong daddy apocalypse. I love, the, <laughs> I, 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 lo- I love Apocalypse's current outfit. Like it's not as chill as it was in Excalibur. Like he's gotten a little bit more Egyptian with it, and mm-hmm. oh, it just looks so cool. Yeah, it feels like he's gone a little bit more back to uh the root of who he was and who he is which is kind of wonderful which is i think also why um uh all the baddies that are female are black women because hello welcome to egypt or somewhere Uh, there's about i'm just saying you know that's true that's true one thing i would like to point out um it's a very small thing in the beginning of the issue but we've seen it throughout kind of dawn of x is the relationship between um polaris and magneto Mm-hmm. Um, this is the the fact that like she takes control or tries to bind Apocalypse and then make, and then she like loses control because he's I mean he is the oldest mutant but one of them um, and the strongest kind of that we found out um, <laughs> and Magneto's like no we can do it me and my daughter we can do this and we can bind him I like that they kind of in this whole like in this whole arc have been like kind of mending that relationship a little bit more like slightly not like heavy handed really they could be doing more but it's definitely like inching its way to being a better 
their relationship. And I like that. Oh, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I got that vibe, too, that it was like a little quiet little moment there. It was just one panel, but it's it's nice to see. And it is something that has been like sprinkled through Dawn of X there, uh, where, where, yeah, I mean, and he, Magneto as a father is nothing new, right? But mm -hmm. now we have Magneto as a father and there is no Scarlet Witch or Quicksilver scene. So mm -hmm. it's it's him and Polaris. That's his uh, his little girl now. And I love it. Yeah. And he's turning from a father to a dad. Yeah. That's really nice to see. I mean, because I feel like in Dawn of X, we've seen a lot of family with like the Summers and I guess Wolverine and Laura a little bit. Um, And I mean, who else? I don't know. Well, I mean, there's there's family by relation, but there's also like family by choice. Yeah. And it's, it's really great to kind of see also the family by choice. It feels less like, oh, we're going on adventures as a team and much more like they actually give a damn about each other. Mm -hmm. so yeah, there's a, a lot of familial interplay, which is which is honestly, it's quite nice to see because you feel way more connected to the characters. Exactly. I feel like I that's always that. been, I feel like that's always been a cornerstone of X-Men is all about this found family where mm -hmm. yes, blood relation is important, but also creating a family out of those who do accept you for who you are and are there for you, but also they're willing to call out your bullshit when you're being stupid. Like mm -hmm. X-Men has always been about found family and I love it. Yeah. And it, and it just has, it just hits different, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you don't get that sense from from justice league or from the avengers or from anyone else really i mean and with fantastic four yeah they do seem like a family like a very tight family. like it's just mm -hmm. the, like the the core mom dad brother sister kind of vibe mm -hmm. but with x-men it really feels like we're in this whole you know world but there is all of these familial connections between them and it's just it's just very different than i think anything else comic yeah definitely yeah i definitely agree with that i would say um i'm, I'm like looking at the issues right now and i have to say i I like that even in this issue when apocalypse is dying and he's like like weak as hell and everything he still throws that sh subtle shade to <laughs> beast when he's like beast is like oh well I, what's the chances of him making it through and he's like well better than yours i'm like oh yeah. man yeah. <laughs> even on his deathbed dragging hoes i know dragging them. Yes. I'm like, I, oh, I, don't, I don't think you could ever see apocalypse without seeing the shade that he throws come on <laughs> No. I mean, Beast, Beast deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely deserves it, especially now because I think he's turning into a dark beast. I mean, just saying. Mm. But man, that I that love, that got I, I'm me. I'm living for that. I'm living for a little bit of Dark Beast. You know, I think this is the one. This is the first time that we've seen Beast on panel not being a dick in a couple yeah. of months. So that was nice. Yeah, true. Um, that's true. But I, I am I'm all for bringing on a Dark Beast because that's that's something I've been thinking about with Donovex bringing all of these you know villains to Krakoa, and now we have a shared cause, and we're all on the same team. Mm -hmm. Is is a really cool story, and it's really compelling. But I like that they are all. Also playing with well what happens when the bat when the good guys start kind of veering in the wrong direction a little bit you know and they're mm -hmm. not it's not too heavy-handed but you see it's it's gradually happening with beast and i think that's that's cool we've seen we've seen a couple of timelines where where beast ends up being a big bass so mm -hmm. i'm into it i'm into i'm into a little gray with my henry mccoy yeah I mean, seeing where it's going yeah i mean i definitely agree with that i so 
I have a random question in my head, and I okay. think I think it'd be fun to ask. So, if if Beast does become dark in this um, in this timeline of Hox Pox, because some of them are going to survive, obviously, of the Horsemen of the original Horsemen, they're probably going to come to Krakoa and like live on Krakoa, right? Do you think Beast would team up with them? And who do you think Beast would team up with to like further his experiments or whatever? I don't know if he'd actually team up with them. No, I don't know. He- as a biologist myself, <laughs> I, I might be exposing myself here, but like it would be really interesting to do some experiments with pestilence for like mm. for like for for like anti research, if that makes any sense, like <laughs> viral research and pandemic research. See, I I don't I don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of faith in in this resolving with some of these guys coming to move to uh, to Krakoa. I could imagine uh genesis if if apocalypse doesn't make it and mm-hmm. possibly he's she survives and he is able to destroy annihilation and save her and kill himself in the process i you know if you put genesis and apocalypse's spot on the council i could roll with that i, I could yeah. i could take that trade oh yeah that'd be awesome uh, the <laughs> only other person that i or entity from from this side that i think might come back is red root oh that, yeah that speaks oh yeah the, because mm. i have a feeling that that might be what cypher what doug's heart is about oh we're not even i was just about to talk about that i was thinking about that today we're that's (laughs) jumping ahead we're jumping ahead but maybe cypher is able to communicate with with red root and and they're able to find some some kind of resolution that doesn't involve us losing our favorite little (laughs) linguistic twink (laughs) so i went the total opposite direction on my Okay, so hear me out. <laughs> we 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 got some pretty um not great predictions for Doug. We we mm. saw that Doug, there's a chance he might not survive, which Don't die. He does. I I hope he does. But on the chance he doesn't, could Genesis be able to communicate with Krakoa and kind of take that place as translator? Because because in, um, in um, New Mutants, that's what was so, that's what Krakoa was really concerned about is losing his voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny you say that because I've been wondering where the hell is Black Hominals? And, right? and it kind of makes me feel like maybe that answers a question a little bit as far as how Black Hom engages with Krakoa, where it's like maybe it's not so much that he's, that he interfaces directly with the Krakoan consciousness as much much as he interfaces with like the uh, you know the biological reality of right like he can kind of yeah. communicate with the parts of Krakoa rather than the Krakoa itself but that doesn't really drive so I don't know it, it just feels kind of suspect that he's not been even mentioned or on panel or anything because it feels like he's part of he's part of this you know the network that communicates with and through Krakoa yeah I would say maybe with Black Tom because first he's kind of crazy and unreliable <laughs> like he's awesome but he's kind of crazy <laughs> um, but the second part of that was maybe like what you said Arturo is maybe it's just kind of like a feeling maybe he's like oh you like because you know how you can like with empaths they can't really read someone's mind um but they can feel the emotion that they're giving like maybe he just feels like uh Kokoa is giving off this anger or this helplessness mm-hmm. or when when Xavier's in danger he can feel that like he's like oh Kokoa is sensing that danger is happening so I need to go that way you know mm-hmm. maybe 
maybe. Maybe. Now, circling back to uh, Genesis and if the uh, horsemen would come to live on the island and, you know, would people be able to team up with them? Uh, I think Genesis, if she was there, the other horsemen could come along because I'm pretty sure that they would listen to her. But yeah. I think without Genesis, the other horsemen would not be welcome because uh, I don't think they'd be on any sort of a leash. There wouldn't really be um, a backup plan of how to contain them if they decided to just do whatever they wanted. And seeing as it's what war, pestilence, famine and death i mean there's not a whole lot of ethical uh, experimentation you could do with them because their powers don't just affect themselves they literally affect the areas and people and and you know the planet around them so i don't true. see them yeah. being an ethical uh experimentation point that is true beef isn't yeah. ethical though <laughs> yeah, well I and I get that, but there are other ethical people who are on that island, and I think that true. would cause a massive amount of tension, to say the least. Well, ethical people, true. so I know you're not talking about Charles Xavier. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. He does not know. He doesn't know the meaning of the word. <laughs> Ethic schmetics. <laughs> Well, one other thing I noticed about this comic that I wanted to get y'all's opinion on is we something that we joked about when we first got the prophecy about the swords was there was this one random sword called Grass Cutter. And so anticlimactic because it was all these amazing sword names and then just grass cutter. And we all made it. But we finally see an information dump about grass cutter in this. And it says that grass cutter and god killer, very dramatically different names, like (laughs) different names. Were both created at the same time, and um, one was perfect, called Grass Cutter, and the other was flawed, called God Killer. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I kind of get it, you know, in like a in like a philosophical aspect. I mean, you kind of have to be perfect to really cut grass because it's so small and dainty. And yeah, if you really want to just cut it and not cut the ground or anything else, you have to be precise and be in all the precision and everything. And then killing a god is not practical and it is flawed because you're not supposed to kill a god. You know, it's, they're, they're gods. You're not supposed, they're supposed to live forever. So maybe in like a spiritual aspect, uh, maybe that's what they were meaning. Or I could be way off. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I'm actually with you. I'm actually with you. It, it kind of reminds me of, um, I want to say the sword is Masamune and Matsumure. Um, I'm probably butchering that second name. But basically, there was uh, Japanese sword crafters, and they made, you know, just the most beautiful, perfect swords. And one sword could literally just slice through anything. It could cut straight through a tree and just, you know, decimate everything. But the more perfect sword was a sword that, you know, it wouldn't even harm a leaf. The leaf would flow around it. In other words, sometimes the best weapon is not the weapon that you have to use to kill a bunch of shit. It's the weapon that only cuts what you ask it to. Oh, okay. Interesting. Damn. That was, yeah, that so, that was heavy. So like precision. So that actually does work into it because what it says is it was a war between 
um, the Greek god Zeus and the Japanese god, oh, I hope I don't butcher this, Amatsu Mikaboshi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something, so I've been take. I'm like obsessed with the good place. And so because of that, I've been <laughs> nice. a lot of like random philosophy lectures on YouTube. Um, <laughs> and so something that they talk about in Japanese culture and artistry is a lot of times they're tools are very specific mm-hmm. uh, actually in uh sword making it, it's it's very precise it's meant for a certain task every blade is specifically made for a task mm-hmm. as in greek mythology if you're a percy jackson fan you'll get this it's kind of chaotic oh, yeah. um where it's like just grab a sword and start hacking Mm-hmm. And I feel like that could definitely go into it. Now, which sword is which, we don't know. But um, it could definitely be examined that way. I bet it's I can tell you which sword is which. Oh, In fact, yeah. I will almost I will almost bet money on it. The curved sword is grass, grass cutter. cutter. It's Absolutely. very much like the samurai sword. It's made yep. for precision. Whereas God Killer, I think, is the, the more straight-edged sword, which is the sword that a ninja would use because it is just meant for straight straight damage it doesn't have um heart or soul or precision it's just meant to cut down the enemy move to the next it's a tool not a piece of your soul oh man oh i like that i like that a lot that got me (laughs) (laughs) well it it was uh back in japan when they were when, when you had samurais each sword that was crafted, you know, it not only did it go to a master craftsman, that master craftsman worked with the samurai it was being commissioned for. So the bend, the arc, the way it was wrapped, the way it was made was meant very specifically for one person. And so, yeah, it was it was all about precision and connection with the wielder. So I think, yeah, the samurai sword is probably going to be grass cutter and be very connected to the person who wields it. Whereas God Killer is a little bit more hack and slash. So probably it's just going to be the straight edge sword and uh, more easily wielded by whoever happens to just have it at hand and pass it off. Speaking of swords, my boy Apocalypse at the end holding his, the scarab. How awesome was that? I was just about to ask about that. When <laughs> you know, about... Awesome. I love the, the, the backstory about it, that it was forged <laughs> by Iska, I think is a really cool little, little touch. Yeah. Uh, and then. Iska to, the unbeaten. Iska the unbeaten, and how he had to uh, rebuild it. I thought that was that was a, it was a cool little quiet moment. It happened in just you know the span of two pages, but mm-hmm. sword quest complete. Apocalypse is ready to roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wouldn't expect anything less from Apocalypse from completing a quest in two pages and leveling so. a pyramid in the process. I love that he just like walked away and the pyramid like oh, yeah. collapsed. The pyramid was a disgrace. He said <laughs> it was for the living, and that's not how it's supposed to be. So it was like this goes down now. Well, not. <laughs> just did he destroy the pyramid he actively destroyed the monuments of his children that he thought were lost oh that's Mm -hmm. true yeah and i wonder if to me it came off as he was upset at their betrayal yeah Mm -hmm. oh i didn't take it like that at all i took it as he because i mean it stands to reason that he created those after they had left and it's like he created them to memorialize and and to honor 
their memory because they have fallen. And now because he knows that they are alive and they are going to war with him, mm-hmm. he knows that these graves are are, are nothing. They, they signify nothing to him. Mm-hmm. That was my reason. Well, it's, it's not. Well, to me, it wasn't just that. Um, if you know anything about Egyptian burial and um, their afterlife practices, uh, your sarcophagus contains uh, needed things for the afterlife. And it's also uh, like a monument to this is the person who lived. This is what they look like. It usually has like a litany of uh, your good deeds or your bad deeds written on it. So for him to destroy his children's sarcophaguses is kind of a, a bit of an F you <laughs> in many ways. And if, if if they died, they don't have a memorial for them to for for their spirit to have rest in so it's like fuck it we got to do this i've probably got to go and destroy my own children so it's yeah it feels like a a mournful but also getting ready for war kind of thing yeah and i definitely i got that from him like looking into the water and preparing himself mm-hmm. to destroy it and then mm-hmm. saying now watch me as i wield it like yes he's like i'm about to destroy my own children as i've done before in my past over and over again he's like this is nothing new but it's harder for me because these are my first children you know your first mm-hmm. children are always you know your heart and soul you have like your first child is always your heart and soul you have your second child third child it's okay but your first child <laughs> is what hits you the most and these are all his first children so he's mm-hmm. just like man i gotta kill them now but you know what it's okay because this is who i am now but yeah. can we talk about how impractical this sort is <laughs> it's mm, it's not wholly impractical it reminds me of the scimitar yeah, yeah. i guess i can see that yeah but yeah it does have like, some weak points when you're like <laughs> i mean not it's not a sword for everybody that's for sure Mm-mm. but like when you're when you're apocalypse size i could see him just cutting the grass with this and like, <laughs> rack, I mean, like dozens of people at a time true true well the pure angles of the blade is actually um what worries me because it has those that sharp corner um mm. that actually becomes a weakness on a sword um as far as a strike point and a break point but then again it was forged by iska the unbeaten so that's gonna be one tough ass sword to say the very least well remember well remember she is the unbeaten so she could easily make a sword that is extremely powerful for the person but with the ones that she is aware of to mm. give her the absolutely so she give genesis the the points that are the weakest sword mm-hmm. all right mm-hmm. well that and i mean he had to he had to reassemble it which means those joint points can pop apart that's true so yeah yeah if iska happens to give uh either the horseman or genesis the the correct information they could disable or possibly find the weak point on that sword you are correct hmm. Ooh, that's <laughs> That's all Apocalypse needs. More more chinks in the armor. <laughs> more ways to take him out. Oh, guys. <laughs> Right. But I can also see him taking, you know, even just the blade itself, just barehanded and smashing somebody with it. So, I mean, that's probably how he's going to die. Right? <laughs> yeah, I put nothing past him. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all in agreement, Sepultura. Like, he does not want Apocalypse to die. And I understand. But I think we're all in agreement that um, Apocalypse, Doug, and probably, we haven't mentioned it, but probably Betsy is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm still on the fence about Betsy. I'm fine with Betsy. I think, no. uh, uh, like, I, and I really like where Betsy is right now as a character. Like, I want to go on record as saying that I like the the latest uh, issue of, of Excalibur I thought was awesome. It was, like, my favorite that I've seen of her. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in, since this whole Dawn of X started, since she became Captain Britain, that, that last issue was really what, what hit hard for me. Um, but, yeah, either her or Brian, I think, are doomed. Everybody else, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But we're not we're not coming back with all those graphics. See, I'm on the fence about the products. I feel like it can go either way. See, I don't think Brian's gonna is gonna die because he got the fortune card. Like that little that little ugh, arrogant <sighs> bratty brother <laughs> is gonna survive. Obviously, well, remember because... that's that's a different comic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I know, know it is. It is. It is. Like ten minutes of this of us just talking. <laughs> I was about to say, what card did what I card think... did uh, Betsy get? See, she no, got... no cards. We're not on that book comic book yet. You no, guys. We're not. We're not. No, no cards no happen. Card. Nothing. We'll I don't know. Abort. 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 I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, you're incredible. We'll get you. Well, well, clearly, clearly, everybody, we are very excited. We all mm-hmm. have our scores, <laughs> and, uh, and we are going for it. Yeah, we're just, right now. We're just placing bets. I'm glad we got it. I'm glad we got the backstory. It really helped with the story. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did like seeing more of Genesis and seeing how mm. it is. Yeah, definitely. Like, honestly, I uh, I know this is horrible of me to say, but I honestly want to see a bit more from the other side because you know it's great Agreed. to be on the hero side and see all of what they're doing, but. I really want to see what the quote unquote bad guys are doing and like kind of their supposition, what they think, what's going on with them. Because honestly, that's that's going to make it more interesting to see the fight go on because it it won't feel one sided. Maybe they could sway the way we think by showing us the opposite side for once. True. I will say for me, like I feel some sympathy for the other side from the little bit that we got from creation. So I don't know if anyone else else feels that way oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's not they're okay. not just like oh we're evil and we're here to destroy your world it's not it's like there it, there's a lot more nuance to it yeah I, right. I can't and i can't wait to see what the hell's going on uh between storm and death who seems oh, completely yes. obsessed with her and yeah. who can play uh, her. i'm so happy i'm so ready yeah i'm very curious how that's gonna work out i'm i'm just i'm i'm so into this <laughs> <laughs> so into this entire story i'm so invested guys um, next thing you know we'll have a thruple between storm death and deadpool oh god <laughs> <laughs> all right i gotta go I gotta anyway go. Not, no <laughs> you, you spoke that for existence raven how dare you uh, i'm gonna oh go before waters take somebody out <laughs> oh my god uh <laughs> We need to end it. Evelyn. (laughs) Evelyn. That's it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Kyle, and you can find me at Drantis82 on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm Nathan, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. And hey, everyone. I am Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. We hope you survive this experience just like Apocalypse survived whatever the heck that was. Some form of mutant disease that made his face all puffy. It looked like he had a bad rea- allergy reaction to something. Uh, oh, I know. And yeah, but he's alive. Kinda. Kinda. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs>
<laughs> so X-Men 13 took a big step away from what we've or have been seeing so far in the current uh Ten of Swords run, which is, you know, story about a swordsman finding their story, but this was much more about the history of Apocalypse and delving into what Apocalypse was like when he had a wife who is I don't know, my everything at this point, and kids, and basically living that normal apple pie life until the old gods were like, no, 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 we don't like what's going on here, and Apocalypse was like, you come into my house and you just respect me like that? And Genesis was like, I got this, babe. And then then she had to go off and to fight war, and she never came back because she was like, I'm a badass woman, I can do what I want. And he was like, yes, I know. Love you, bye. Uh, that's basically the gist of what happened. Did I miss any- I don't think I missed anything. <laughs> well, I mean, she 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 did also claim that he wasn't strong. Yes. Oh my god. Which I think is fascinating because if this issue has taught me anything, and if everybody else's you know reaction to Apocalypse is Apocalypse is one of the toughest, most powerful mutants that we've ever seen. What is her- what is Genesis's power level that she <laughs> was calling Apocalypse? Weak. Honestly. <laughs> oh my god. What is it that the data page says? A mint is a black planet of black death, a hellscape of demons and things and of a darker origin. Like if she can thrive in a mint, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you've got to be pretty powerful in order to survive there. And I mean, pretty much her entire family survives, so it's pretty good to say that they're all very very powerful also i just want to make a very quick note besides them being powerful uh on the page that shows you apocalypse with all his kids and his wife summoner uh, (laughs) summoner i guess got this snatched because fully bald (laughs) full sinead o'connor and um i'm I, I don't know if I'm here for it or not, but I do want to talk about the, um, I really want to like, quickly talk about the art, because I think the, the, the art for this was so beautiful and really was able to help drive this story narrative that I think was, you know, so, I don't like, for a book that lacked a lot of action, I don't, I didn't find myself bored. Did you guys, do you guys echo that sentiment? Oh, absolutely. Like, this was the first time I've really been drawn into that history of okara you know i was like wow because usually before when they did it i was like okay way too much of a data dump but this was just the right amount yeah yeah i i agree with that i mean it's it's definitely a huge lore dump regarding okara and apocalypse and pretty much all these characters that we're going to be dealing with for the next um 12 issues so it was a lot but i was i was really drawn in overall i would say for this i really liked the pacing for it just really the lore was it was really good insight to prepare us for what to expect soon absolutely and i think it did this interesting job of i don't want to say humanizing mutinizing apocalypse into being you know more about where he comes from and why he does what he does and the way he acts because i cannot claim to know who what apocalypse has done or what he looks like i only know the my the basis of my uh apocalypse lore is that he made a bunch of people a horseman blah 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 and blink slash chamber are distantly related to him yeah that was (laughs) those are my fun apocalypse facts but 
we got to see this new, almost a new facet and this new side to who Apocalypse is and his life pre-Earth slash Krakoa. I really found it interesting, and I want to just echo a sentiment that um, Robbie said, that the pacing didn't feel off. I think it really did go about in a way that was interesting and uh, attention-grabbing without feeling like it was boring slash slogging on. And I think that's a really great testament to the art team, both the writers and the... Oh, we didn't say the credits. Oh. It's fine. It's fine. We'll live. <laughs> I, I'm sure the other room has, and I don't know if they, we need to say it twice. Yeah. Um, oh my God. So like talking about the art, right? When they show, when you're talking about the page with uh, Apocalypse and his family, I love the like juxtaposition between Krakoa and Oraco. And then the next page when the Annihilation helmet goes on one of the demon lackeys. Uh, just like that whole transformation and the body horror of that is so oh, amazing. Yes, yes. That that whole section with the helmet and it completely consuming its, I guess we could call it a host, uh, seeing as the data page does say that while the wearer rules uh, Arako and Amenth, it's the the helm itself rules the wearer so yeah um yeah it, it it's really creepy and i'm all for it absolutely yeah, what i really love for like the art like going on that is the slow like um disintegration is that the word i'm looking for mm, yeah, yeah that's a good yeah. word yeah uh, like the disintegration of like the body like over a few panels is is beautiful <laughs> yeah and i guess it really drives home that point where like that host wasn't strong enough to hold that host of annihilation so that's so cool I want to talk about the Annihilation Masters for a little bit more because, uh, for those of you who don't remember, in the X-Men Free Comic Book Day issue where Saturnine is doing her tarot reading, we actually see the Annihilation Mask. And I thought we had a lot of speculation of what that meant, who was Juxtaposition, which we now know is Genesis, Apocalypse's late question mark wife. And I think it's so interesting to see that it's not a specific character, but this entity that lives in this mask that creates this host. And Marvel's loving their body horror right now. They're going through a body horror phase, and it's it's fine. We're here for it. A little grotesque, but I do like it. For this Ten of Swords run, I've been very fascinated to see when we're going to get Saturnine's premonition and her reading of the future from her tarot cards into our story and what that means. And seeing this issue directly tie into the one card, I wish I remembered what it is. I want to say it was the Five of Cups. Um, That's the first thing that popped into my head. But having it all, again, tie into this larger narrative, I think is so interesting to finally, like, I think it it feels like, uh, oh, yeah, it's the relief of, like, this anticipation of building up to it. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Just the scene where like, uh, like apocalypse is kissing his wife too. Like, I'm like, what? I never thought I would be so interested in seeing apocalypse's romantic entanglements because, you know, usually we're like, Oh, apocalypse is above all of that. He doesn't need love. Right. But he does. He does. Well, Moira loved him for a bit in one life. That's true. But, I mean, did she? Did she really? Or was she just <laughs> using him? <laughs> she was using him for his hot 
blue bod. <laughs> or his hot, yeah, his hot blue bod that now, um, who's getting it? Oh, Richter. Uh, <laughs> well, if Shatterstar is going to spend his time in the Mojoverse and not come join Krakoa, um, yeah, that's yeah. not, he can't complain too much. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, he's over there stuck like half brainwashed, I guess. Or just kind of held captive. I, would, I, I, I wouldn't say brainwashed, just captive. Back to that panel of Apocalypse kissing Genesis. That was honestly my favorite panel of the book, just because of how much emotion, how much love you could feel, you could sense between the two of them. And it, it really just showed a side of Apocalypse that we've never seen before. Absolutely. And one of the things that I love is when you give every character that same multifaceted, multidimensional personality that makes them more well-rounded and makes them even more lifelike. Not to say that Apocalypse was really more one-dimensional, but you see it a lot with other villains where their motives or their actions don't really make sense outside of generalized I'm evil. But having this backstory and giving more to a character that is already larger than life and can be pretty exciting, I think is really interesting, especially seeing him be tender and loving and like protective almost of his family is great oh my god yeah with that where she says you are not strong enough like just that like sets and like place this huge motive for him to always struggle to find the fittest you know the survival of the fittest used to always be what his arc was about but like at least now we see some of his motivation i definitely agree with a lot of that because years ago this is a lot of the stuff that we've been seeing with apocalypse this past year is stuff that i don't think most readers would have expected to really see in his character so i really like this new approach to him Absolutely. I think it's a really great breath of life and a fresh air about this character that is already a really cool character, but to have this new, unexpected uh, element to his backstory and to his future stories, I think is great. I just looked it up. It was the Eight of Cups, so I was only slightly off. <laughs> but um, Just to talk about what's on the card real fast, because this is basically what the issue is about. Disillusionment and abandonment. That which was once the harmonious lifting of voices is now a mocking echo, then silence. So I think this is, it's just kind of really talking about the death of Genesis and the idea of what Apocalypse once had. And now he kind of just doesn't have that anymore. Yeah. And then one thing that I really love about that card and with like the meaning and what we learn about this issue is with like, when you look at her character, you see multiple different forms of abandonment, like how Iska betrayed them and how they had to leave. And the way that we're starting to really learn a lot about more of her background is I really like that. Mm-hmm, definitely yes more more stories more genesis stories more of more betrayal more <laughs> what happened i would love to oh, yeah uh, i'd yeah i definitely would like to see what happened in those thousands of years between when arako and krakoa were split and when all of this is happening right now i want to see that other side of the story Oh my god, absolutely. If this was the 90s, we would have gotten a, like, a Rocco miniseries coming out of this event, just to fill that in. <laughs> I mean, what's stopping them from doing it? Um, 
Did anybody else feel like Gorgon was a weird addition? He had like three lines and it just felt weird. Like he smelled the wind <laughs> and then was like, that's a nice big sword you got. And then that was about it. I I don't know if it was fully necessary because there's a lot of characters in this, this book. And I think it's one of the, uh, you know, front page headshot panel pages that has a, probably some of the most, which is fascinating because it's, I don't want to say inconsistent, but it's interesting to see who they will give a head panel to and who they won't, no matter their importance to the story. Because like, I feel like there's definitely been some issues where a character was important, but they didn't give them a headshot. And so you're like, well, I'm not expecting this person to be in here. But that's a nice surprise. Yeah, yeah, that is that is uh, a, a really good point. I was not... I, I... I was expecting more out of Gorgon than just him kind of escorting Apocalypse, but at the same time, I mean, he kind of is the official bodyguard for the Quiet Council, so I guess it kind of does make sense. It does, but like, and this is just going back to my theory that Banshee's the redheaded stepchild of the X-Men that they just don't really (laughs) like. Uh, He doesn't even get a line, but he does get a headshot. Banshee's not allowed to speak anything. Oh no, but at least we got to see Dr. Reyes. Absolutely. She's back. That was nice. (laughs) After, uh, was it Wild Child who, you know, stabbed her in the throat? Oh, it was no, one of those, no, it uh, was the little factor. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, one yeah. of uh, Mikhail's those... little little uh, Matroshka dolls. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was so mad about that. And I love her outfit. Oh my god, like her super. I guess it's her superhero outfit now. I love that. Oh my god. Yes, I uh, concur. I she's a character I don't know a lot about, but I am fascinated to know more about her. So I wish that she gets to play a bigger role in something. Give me a. Can we have an X Men medical drama? Oh <gasps> yeah. Nice. Like I because okay, I heard this once, and I don't know how true this is that. To be at the X-Men Academy, you have to be like a pre-med student. I don't really believe that statement, but I imagine a lot of them would be, besides being super smart, go into the medical field slash like like genetics slash biology research. So like, where's the medical drama issue? <laughs> Wait, was that one of the was that one of the prerequisites to get into the Xavier Institute? Really, I don't like. like I heard this in a video. I I have to fact check this because I I don't want to like spew this knowledge as truth. But supposedly there's also there was also supposedly a human who went to the Charles Xavier Institute. You technically don't have to be a mutant. You just have to test in. <laughs> um, so I want to see that story. Oh my god! There there uh, I will. Next issue, and I will put it in our, you know, the Twitter chat. I will fact check myself that there is there is a human, there is a homo homo sapien who went to. Um, <laughs> they uh, did once have that one girl who in the Dazzler and the Beast miniseries who like could like change colors of flowers and stuff that like flunked out of the Xavier Institute, I guess because her powers weren't cool. But it makes you think of a tweet that was like, uh, "So uh, Charles Xavier, so what are your powers?" And it's me, and I would say, um, "I have the power of hindsight," to which Charles. Xavier would say that's not useful get out to which I would say ah yes I see that now (laughs) Um, but going from weird mutants but powers that may or may not be useless to this sword and we got two new swords introduced into uh, this issue through these data pages and Apocalypse is wielding the scarab which 
I like where it was found with that name, but I don't know if the design matches the name for me. Hmm. Maybe actually, maybe I take that back because the curvature kind of looks like a scarab beetle, and I can see it. But it's a um, scimitar. Yeah, named scarab. Yeah. It, it's just a weird name. Yeah, and when you go to uh, Gorgon's sword, does isn't he? He's got two swords, right? The God Killer and Grass Cutter. So, like yes. you guys were saying, I really like. I don't. Gorgon's one of the people I don't know a lot about. I didn't really read his arcs, so I, I want to know more about him. And that was the one thing I was really lacking in this issue. I, they're like, "Oh, hey, here's Gorgon and his two swords." Like he's two sword bearers, and we don't know anything about him. Yeah, and this goes back to, I don't want to say that they played it safe with who they're using, because there's if there's anything about this contest, it's not safe. You're, you're not safe, because if you lose, you're dead, and we're not exactly sure if we'll be able to recreate you in the way that you were. Granted, I don't know if they tried that method with Rockslide that Hope brought up, saying they're starting from scratch. So I don't know if they did that with Rockslide that he would come back normal. Anyway, it's why I say that they're playing safe is that they picked a lot of like cool but characters you would expect to see, and I really wish that they took some risks in the sense of characters who they chose and who they chose to focus on. Like, while I don't think Gorgon's the most popular character out of the ten swordsmen that they need, I think at least dedicating at least one issue to him would have helped. You know help every reader understand who is this character besides an edgy sword guy <laughs> yeah that's that is true um but i i have also been hearing a lot of grumbling that the collecting of swords was taking too long and people were just getting antsy to get to the main event so may, maybe kind of trying to rush it through was part of the plan but at the same time they should have spent a little more time on it instead of just throwing the swords into a into a data page and that's that i hear that grumbling and i don't want to say that it's invalid but there's also a thing of build up and anticipation you're supposed to be wanting to this and i think Maybe what they could have done is show the more serious stakes that are at risk for each swordsman, as opposed to, you know, a full on, here's my adventure of getting my sword, you know, talk about what they might lose and help, you know, not satiate that idea that you need that immediate satisfaction of what's going to happen with you mulling over. If this character dies, this is what they lose. I could definitely get behind that. Is, is that what we're leading up to? Like, do we, do we think that apocalypse, I mean, I, my personal opinion is apocalypse is, is not going to make it out of the story, at least not the same. Like, do, do you guys all think that apocalypse is going to be one of the big losses? Oof. You know, that's a great question. I I think so. I think here's what I think the mutants are going to win. Uh, I think obviously because if they don't, X Men's over. Goodbye. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but I think that of the characters, so like you would have to, they would have to win six out of five, uh, six out of ten fights to win. So not counting a draw. Uh, and we're this is where this is where we're assuming that there's no draws allowed. Blah 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 blah. So in theory, four people can die. I think Apocalypse would be one of them. I I truly do think that Apocalypse won't make it out. I think there's too much intertwinement with him that if he's facing off any of his kids, which I think we who's he who's he up against? Do we know yet? Uh, I haven't seen that one. Is that one out? 
I haven't seen who the pairings are yet. I mean, there have been some parallels, I guess, between the sword bearers from each side, but I I haven't really seen anything. It's possible they they might have released something. I always but... assumed it was going to be him versus Annihilation or uh, Genesis. Yeah, that was my that was my assumption. Yeah, I always assumed that too. I think I have to agree with that, that that if that's who one of the champions are on the other side, I absolutely think that's who Apocalypse would have to face because, you know, I think Saturnine would be drinking a glass of wine being like, I love this. <laughs> but um, I would just want to make a joke real fast because I love the comparison. I really think Ileana and Pog Your Pog have a lot in common. So I think that, that matchup <laughs> really, really uh, goes together. I've seen a lot of people ship them as friends, and <laughs> that's how uh, that's how I hope it ends. I want to see some fan art of Yana trying to catch Pog Your Pog in a Pokeball. I mean, come on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> she would absolutely take him to Limbo, and they would have a very good brunch down there. Yeah. Do you they think really Elena does that? Like, she'll bring some mutants down... <laughs> to limbo for like an excursion she'll be like come quick like something bad's happening and then it's just brunch and she, has, like, <laughs> she like claps and she's like um i forget what her demons names are but like she'll call them over yeah. and, like, and then she'll just send them away that will happen i mean i wouldn't yeah. be shocked <laughs> oh my god everybody gets there and it's like delightful like cucumber sandwiches with no crust but do you think because it's limbo they have to be bad like it's bad brunch <laughs> Oh, <laughs> conjecture and things that this is why I don't work at Marvel because I would absolutely try to write that and they would, you know, lock me up and never mind. Um, something that we didn't talk about in the history uh, of that Apocalypse is going over is that we actually see the White Sword, who is one of the champions for Arako, which I think is interesting. Oh, yeah. So it's not just his family that has been stuck on the other side of the the chasm between the two worlds. Yeah, also, they call the White Sword the Champion of the Champions. Mm. It was just a, it's a very weird title and wording that they used for that. But I am... Out of all of the swordsmen that we've seen from that, that you know that beautiful cover with all their, when they're all named and hearing the panel, the NYCC panel of the writers of this going over like which ones are their favorites, I'm very excited to get to them. But the one whose design like fascinated me the most was the white sword or one of them because there were a couple that I really loved, and I am interested to see how he plays into this because his look on his face is very somber. And that would be a very interesting characteristic to have someone on the Arako side be very reluctant to do this. Mm, that's a good point, actually. He looks so sad. He looks like the Colossus of Arako. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, the perpetual no. hot sad boy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know it was important to the character, and I really loved it. The scene where he goes to the Temple of the Horseman, and he's like, but I know this is one monument to the living, and it angers me. So he goes and, like, destroys the sarcophaguses and then the sword's like all shattered in pieces and magically he gets it back together. I'm like, wow. And then he destroys the entire uh, temple. Yes. It's reverse daddy issues. He's got problems with his kids. <laughs> as opposed to... Well, his kids have problems with him, and I feel like if you want to be on the X, you want to be an X-Men, you have to have daddy issues. It's oh, yeah. too, too much of a recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> All my favorites do. Dazzler, daddy issues. Karma, daddy issues. So, tracks. Um, overall, with this issue, it just made me really, really, really excited to see what else they have um, to show us with Genesis, really. Yes, I so want to see more of her. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, I definitely hope that we we get a lot more of Genesis and see and I mean if if she's alive then see if uh, how she and Apocalypse uh reconnect. <gasps> Oh, oh, it's like the new Mrs. and Mrs. X with Apocalypse and Genesis. Oh, I would I would read that, and I think our biggest takeaway of this issue is the love for Genesis, and we're going to start banging pots and pans if we don't get more of her. So she's not important <laughs> to this, because like, how do you dedicate a tarot card to her? How do you make her basically dom Apocalypse and be like, "You're weak, but I still love you"? Like, how do you introduce this character to us and then? You better give us more. That's all I'm saying. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico Action. You can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter and at Asleep at the W-E-I-L dot com. And guys, I'm Maddie, and you can find me on Instagram at, at the basically covetous man. And today we are joined together in part to bring you chapter 10 of Ten of Swords, which is X-Men number 13, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Asrar, color by Sonny Go, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, and design by Tom Muller. So, okay, this entire issue, uh, you know, and like, uh, I hate to be that guy. So like, I've realized that my problem with Ten of Swords was best summarized by this issue. Basically, after X-Factor number four, where everything got super duper, you know, everything's bad, we're all going to die, and we got all the amazing prophecies, it became this race for the weapons, which I'm loving, but I realized part of why I feel like kind of so stuck in this mode is because all of these issues have essentially happened concurrently. And now that we're finally at the go do some stuff stage, I'm feeling a little bit more positive on the series. Like, not that I've not enjoyed anything, but like this issue was the most buildup of all of the buildups that have built up because this was still in the middle of X Factor number four. Yeah. And they definitely took a lot of extra time there. Um, I know you, when you hear the creators talk about that they had the opportunity to flesh it out and they had so many more story ideas they wanted to tell that, you know, it gave them the opportunity to put some of these things in. Um, and I'm assuming that a lot of the expanding, the sword fetching was part of that. But like, I'm happy if if we got a background on Solemn that we wouldn't have gotten. I think that's great. If we got, you know, some of these bits and pieces that we wouldn't have fully gotten, you know, we wouldn't have gotten a, maybe a whole episode of uh, Doug and Ileana. Okay, so... But yeah, it's been a little slower. Um, There's also been some issues, kind of my feeling on this one was that a lot happened, but not. You know, I do the the recap on my website, right? I have the uh, gallery pages that I've been doing where I'm trying to get everything in like three lines or less, like recap an issue. And some issues, it's so damn hard to like get those recapped and like that. There's so many things that happen. And other ones, it's just like, Doug tries to learn how to fight. Hey, that's the whole issue. And I feel like that kind of, yeah, it kind of comes down to whether the comic is written like in, you know, not to get too comic technical-y, but whether it's written in widescreen comic to arc format, or it's written in sort of like a scripted page by page, let's think about exactly the story beats. There's almost no issue of New X-Men by Grant Morrison that can be summarized in less than like eight sentences, but there's almost no issue of Astonishing X-Men by Joss Whedon that can be summarized in more than two. And, and this was one, like when I went to make my notes here, 
you know, I take notes for every time we do these episodes and most of them have, you know, the big ones have maybe nine, 10 bullet points. The smaller ones have like three to four. I had trouble getting to three to four on this one. Like I have one really big, I like idea. Wow. Thing about like apocalypse backstory, like a whole new perspective on that, but it's just like one thing. Like they're really, I felt like there should have been more beats in here. Like there was one really good beat, but then not really anything else. Now, Maddie, I know that you're all about the big blue boy. So I kind of wonder, how do you feel about exactly what Josh is saying? This dynamic reframing of the big blue boy as like the big blue softy. You know, I, I definitely think that it is it is the one and only time that we can see this done. This is not exactly a well that I think that can be revisited. Uh, this is going back to, as far as canonical history is concerned, the birth of Krakoa and Arako. And I think that it's a choice, you know, unlike any other. It's it's uh, it's certainly been a choice, but I, I feel like to, to echo something that Josh was saying, I made the mistake, not the mistake, but I read the these issues, I read X-Men number 13 right into Ten of Swords stasis. And it wasn't until I went back and reread the issue singularly for the purpose of this episode that I was like, oh, wow, this was just, huh. There was there was nothing here. There was the introduction of Annihilation. There was another round of backstory on the Amendi. And okay, all right, yeah, that's it. That's really it. Plus now we know what Scarab is and, and uh, Godkiller and Grasscutter. Yeah, we don't even get any we don't even get any data pages on like new mysterious realms. You know, to like, ooh, okay, so like, hey, there's this cool realm that has like vampire assassins, or ooh, this one's like the Borg with like a pirate sheriff. Like there's none of like we've used all those. All of those were used up in the other issues. And I kind of wonder how much of this then was like the secret dark seedings that like Hickman loves. I noticed that Scarab was made of otherworldly metal, and I don't know if that's going to be significant. That Scarab was made of the metal of the of the enemies that were slain in the royal family. So, like, I appreciated knowing that, but I kind of, for my sake, I feel like one of the things that they've been tiptoeing around is exactly why this, why now, why all of it, right? And I don't know if it's that Apocalypse saw the opportunity that it was finally here, you know, Christmas, it's finally here. And like, maybe now he could do his thing. But I find myself a little curious as to how this narrative is all going to come together in the larger picture of the X-Men. Because I agree with you, Maddie. I do think the great softening of Apocalypse is a once in a once in a character lifetime move. I don't think you can really go back to this well of dark, dark sadness for Apocalypse. <laughs> so, I, you know, and uh, I'm just getting ahead of myself. I think the thing I appreciated the most was actually getting Annihilation and the way that that did tie to another reality. We found out that whoever wears the mask of Annihilation controls this other realm, but is controlled by the mask. And they just sort of chalk it up to some elder god. What? That's something that I feel like we need a little bit more on. Or it's ultimately completely unimportant who Annihilation is, but rather their goal is what's important. So any any Elder God things right now have me going back to Powers of Ten and thinking about, you know, those 
uh, the kind of the tiers of power and, you know, what we saw with the technarchs and the phalanx and the rearranging of those to essentially be like God levels. Because that's just that's just a trigger now in the Hickman books. Like, ooh, are we foreshadowing bringing? Is this an opportunity for that to come back? I like I really love what they did with Apocalypse here. And I don't think it's too it's not like, oh, we found his sad core. For me, it just it takes something and it, it simplifies it. It's parsimonious. It is a better explanation than the one we've been relying on for the last 30, 40 years. The idea that someone who was so intensely driven to for things to be stronger, they have to be stronger, they have to be stronger. That we've always just looked at him and be like, no, he's the strongest and things have to be strong like him. Well, it's a much more reasonable explanation that that insane drive for things to be stronger comes from a place of insecurity as opposed to security. Like, comes from the place that he was not strong enough, not that he's always been the strongest. And seeing here that, like, once upon a time, Apocalypse was the softest bitch in his family... And that that's what drove the insecure, the insecure and mad, you know, desire for everything to be stronger, must be stronger, as long as we've seen him in comics, is so good. Like, it doesn't just fit. It's so much better than what we've had. And it gives us such a better character now. Oh, I completely agree. I think back to Apocalypse's origin. Now, two things. Number one, your description there makes it sound like Moira is Mrs. Lovett and Apocalypse is Sweeney Todd in some sort of mutant meat pie nightmare. And I don't know that I could love anything more. Uh, So there's that, number one. But number two, Apocalypse's original introduction was done in silhouette. His first appearance is kind of like semi-off panel in silhouette. And it was drawn and written by a guy named Bob Layton. And Bob Layton was really having trouble being the writer and artist on X Factor and was running behind constantly, especially because they even told him, you have to completely revamp the book after four issues. Like, uh, right away, it was not the hit they were hoping for. So his original intent was to have that shadowy figure who was the criminal mastermind of the mutant underworld be the classic daredevil villain, the Owl. So everything about Apocalypse has sort of been seat of your pants, just kind of making it up as we go along, hoping for the best and taking these threads of stories that are set up 20 and 30 years in advance and, you know, trying to create something believable out of it. Knowing what you know now about Apocalypse's original character, model was a changed take when somebody said no the owl's too stupid you know knowing that this hasn't been a plan since day one does it make the fact that this couldn't have been the plan since day one or a little bit easier to swallow you know i I don't think it's so much of an issue swallowing it as it is an issue of believing that it is in line with the character which personally in my limited experience reading the character i think that this is this is like we've said a once in a character arc lifetime choice but it's still a fine choice to make but i i actually never knew that about the owl that's crazy now josh in your 80s comics masterdom did you were you aware that wheezy came in and said no i can't do this yeah i didn't know specifically the owl but i knew that he had other ideas and wheezy fixed that shit because she's a g the thing about apocalypse and i've mentioned this in in previous episodes as well apocalypse and sinister both there was and I don't remember, I haven't gone back and looked it up, but a couple of weeks ago, there was a, uh, a former X-Men writer who was tweeting, and maybe you guys saw it, but he had commented that, 
Like he's written sinister and he cannot tell you exactly what sinister's powers are. Like sin- apocalypse and sinister were so poorly defined for so long. That hey, you're not going to hear me disagree. They've needed like they've needed things like this. Like they've needed a strong hand. Sinister got it more than Apocalypse. This is Apocalypse's first time getting it. Sinister got it from Kieran Gillen, who really helped reshape that back in 2012. Apocalypse never has. I know I've heard on some other podcasts over the last year people bringing up Apocalypse, and you know one of the common things that I've heard multiple people say is, "When was the last great Apocalypse story?" And the answer There's is never always been a great apocalypse. X Factor. Never. X Factor 23 through 25 in 1986. Can't agree. Can't agree. That's that's that. I respect you as a man and a father and a comic book scholar and a guy with great hair, but I think that's one of those "I'm the bad guy, ha ha ha" arcs. Oh, you got to go back and reread it. Especially- I read it three months ago. It's just oh, one of those I'm the bad guy arcs. No! Post Hoxpox, the scene in, I don't remember if it's 24 or 25, but the scene where he tries to recruit X Factor, Apocalypse is trying to recruit X Factor over to him about building a mutant nation where mutants are not subject to human laws, like where mutants make their own laws and they don't report or have to, um, like they don't have to report to humans is so so good today post hoxpox like Hold it up. really got apocalypse didn't come to the rest of the x-men the rest of the x-men finally came around to what apocalypse was offering them in 1986 hold up no 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 i now i have to ask maddie maddie you're the tiebreaker bro you gotta weigh in you gotta weigh in real hard man here's the question does a later writer's retcon make an earlier writer's work better or because like i don't attribute that to apocalypse in 1986 i attribute that to john hickman saying hey wheezy you had some cool ideas in 2018 so maddie how do you feel because like i i I have feelings about retcons maddie how do you feel about retcons i you know i i think there's a there's a time and a place if it proved to be for a greater artistic choice i i think that yeah in 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 light of a retcon you can go back and look at an earlier work and see what is sometimes a by by sheer coincidence you know i would never say that that line by apocalypse in 1986 shaped jonathan hickman's intention for house of x but i will say that it is some damn fine luck that it is it, it it ages better now in retrospect. You guys heard it here from the second and third best looking guys in this conversation that um <clears throat> that evidently it's okay to give retcon credit to people in the past. You heard it here first. <laughs> I just I mean we're talking about the foundations of apocalypse. Like there's not much for him as a character. So what are you going to go to? Apo- um, X Factors five and six. Weezy was not really defining Apocalypse. Like, she was, like you just said, like, she was putting that shit together on the fly. When did and she doing the best actually, she fucking could. Yeah. When did she start actually doing something with him? Really follow the mutants. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we get a decade of his relationship to Cable and the future stuff, starting with Chris Claremont's Endgame, going through all of the uh, Scott Lobdell stuff, that then, unfortunately gets all wrapped up in the worst possible way in, in the 12 by, you know, a completely different writer. Um, well, by, by a completely different writer named Alan Davis. Alan so Davis. I mean, like... no, but, but someone who like, if we're talking about what 
what would be the best story for Alan Davis? Like, we love Alan Davis. What should he tell? Fucking apocalypse fucking up Cyclops's head and, like, all of them getting jumbled together in, like, dark, like, end-of-the-world dystopian shit. Like, that's not an Alan Davis story. Like, that's not the one that you're reaching out to him to do. Well, so here's what happened, though. They wanted a big-name writer, and they just wanted him to come in and do all of the stuff that needed closing out. So finish out Mikhail, finish out anything with the Morlocks from back then, finish out anything with uh, bringing back Warlock, do the M-Tech thing. Every one of Alan Davis's storylines was essentially editorially mandated, and he was brought in pretty much just to get a good paycheck. And the 12 had been something that several writers in the interim had attempted to dial into. After 1996 is the rise of Apocalypse, it was like all the rage to like, try and play with apocalypse in an original way because it was like somebody finally realized he was Egyptian and that they should maybe have him be at all <laughs> Egyptian. And you know, that actually reminds me. So amazing memory, Maddie and I on his birthday walking through New York comic con special edition right on, uh, was that one on the piers or was that one at the Javits? It was, at, that the one was at the Javits. Yeah. It was right? at the Javits. So you and I are walking down and I see a complete set of Rise of Apocalypse. And this is back when uh, Apocalypse the movie was coming out. So there was a lot of hubbub about that particular arc. And I pointed right at it and I said to Maddie, you know, I would do anything to like replace my copies of those that I have no idea what happened to. I just got to buy that sometime. And the guy stops me and goes, well, how much are you going to pay for it? And I was like, dude, my number would insult you so bad that I'm not going to say it. And he said, dude, no one's buying it at $80 for the four books. What are you going to offer me? And I said, honestly, I probably wouldn't offer you more than 25. And he was like, just get it out of my fucking face, man. Sure. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that started my con off right. Oh, that's a start of a con. That sounds like that sounds like 45 minutes till they turn the lights off at a con. No, that was like 20 minutes after walking in, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, see, I've I've had similar experiences, but they're always at the end, final hour. Like, don't make me carry this back out to my fucking car. Yeah, well, 100%. I have definitely sold some copies of Kid Riot at like $5 if it meant I didn't have to repack a box. Like, oh, you want you want to buy this book? You want to buy my book? Sure. Uh, you know what? I'll sign it too. Uh, and you can have free bookmarks and free stickers and free pins. Just please take this one. I forgot it. So um, now, okay, all things said and done though, this was a turning point for Apocalypse in a really like in a really significant way. Also, uh, Apocalypse and Sinister. If anybody is looking for a little bit more understanding on the relationship between Apocalypse and Sinister, you probably want to do yourself a favor and read the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. You want to read the Hellfire Club mini from the late '90s, and you want to pick up the classic '90s crossover Executioner song that has a little bit of the information you're looking for, though no relation to the character executioner who was significant at the time so which is just okay. wild so stupid and so <laughs> it it brings me to the great like leveling ground that was this arc now this this arc this one issue i think i felt like we were sh we were told more than we were shown and i understand that this was kind of compiling all of the things from the entire run so far into one convenient place but I did feel a little bit like Apocalypse was kind of narrating the last 20 issues for people just in case they hadn't picked up on all of the threads. And it made me realize just how badly I want a complete collection of all the data pages. Uh, I've been screenshotting them all and collecting them. I've been trying to figure out what order to put them in. 
I think I would have to just go like in order in order, but I really respect trying to figure out if there's like a narrative order to put them in. Yeah, especially all of the the different locations in other world. Like I want a canonical like I want it that to move around like a clock. Nico's brought up in the past that they make a really great break, right? Like the way that they're placed in the story as, you know, like a scene break is very effective sometimes. But I would also love if you know, like they were literally just all 10 in a row, like, and we got the whole map with all of them or like on a big pull out poster or something in the hardcover. Oh, that would be beautiful. And that kind of just brings me back to the connection to Tori Amos's music that I've been screaming about for the last two weeks, where there's all of these connections between Tori's music and John Hickman's work. And, you know, he wound up writing a story for a Tori Amos comic book. But a lot of Tori Amos albums have extensive maps that explain kind of the narrative of what's going on in the music. And that's definitely something that John Hickman has relied on extensively, this notion of geography. You know, Maddie, you covered the island of Krakoa for our Zaso Hotmu special. And I'd be fucked if you couldn't say that Krakoa was a full character in this series. Oh, Krakoa is for sure a full character, is is potentially the most important character, and and comprised eight pages out of that entire handbook. I mean, the importance is real. Now, you know, I probably think that the weird pivot to, and I guess it's not a weird pivot, but I guess the natural pivot to Krakoa is so fascinating, because when I think about the X-Men and Islands, I think about Genosha, and... There's something really fascinating about the fact that Genosha was sort of just like a regular island that the humans of the world started to use as like a mutant torture facility. And that's why there would be no great claim to Genosha. Genosha wasn't some magical faded island. It isn't some magical faded part of the mutant experience. Genosha is just this island that happens to be filled with mutant bodies. But Krakoa is the island of magic. And I think with all of that coming together, the fact that we had to go to like Egypt and get Scarab, which don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled that we got it. It's a beautiful sword. And, you know, Raven said some incredible things about the nature of Egyptian um, burial arts. And also it turns out the woman is a swords master and knows a lot about the creation and development of swords. So, you know, please make sure to check that segment and hear all about Raven telling us about those sort of things. But something that she said was that Egyptians view burial rites as for the dead not for the living and the ultimate betrayal that apocalypse must feel that he built these beautiful memorials to his dead children his dead family and now they mean nothing his family was never really dead i think there's something so fascinating in a situation where we feel like we've had the rug pulled out from under us we feel like we don't know what the fuck is really going on in some ways, neither does Apocalypse. When Apocalypse started doing all of this at the beginning of Hoxpox Doxos, he didn't know he was going to reunite with his family. And that's kind of like, it's where my gears can't stop turning. I never saw us getting here, so I don't know where we're going next. And, I mean, it's been an incredible journey because, you know, I think we can look at it now and say that when he started this, he had hoped. He had hoped that he might be able to reclaim his family or he could hope that he would be able to prove himself worthy to their, you know, descendants. And then he found them. Then he got into Otherworld and he he fell to his knees. He was humanized in a way we'd never seen them. And they betrayed him and tried to kill him. And now, and now you look at this two-page 
um, you know, this two-page layout here of where he retrieves Scarab in X-Men 13. And it's he's drawn with such resignation, the heavy shoulders, the head down. Like, he is so just sunk into this that having to destroy these, like, it's giving up on so like emotions that he's held hope that carried him on for so long to have to destroy these and take those back. Like there is such resignation is the word I keep coming back to. Um, and then, you know, he gets the line to Gorgon, you know, like now watch me wield it. And you know what? I think he got off really easy at the end of this issue because I think this was, there was an unacceptable breaking of the mold. There needed to be one last page where he walks up to the circle like, hi guys. And everyone had to be like, glad you made it. We need to do it. Did you bring cheeseburgers? We're so fucking hungry. Well, and, you know, it's it's so great that you brought that up, Josh, the, not just the, the fact that they're hungry, because they're hungry, but the fact that there's resignation to the sadness in the art. Now, you guys are both artists in a way I could never hope to be. You know, I find uh, there's a pretty uh, – one of my friends on X Twitter did a really phenomenal job with Inktober, but I can't draw, right? My friend Murph uh, did a great job doing 31 – pieces of art that I think the thing that I thought was most beautiful about them was that they so consistently and conceptually executed who they were meant to be. I was never unsure who I was looking at, even though this person felt like they couldn't draw, right? I love Some- them. Oh my God, I love them. They were fucking perfect. Every single one of them. And something I feel like because of that, I can only ever hope to express resignation through like, <gasps> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't understand the subtlety of reframing a character so big like Apocalypse in weak ways, something that really, really sticks with me is that Apocalypse is always meant to be somewhat metallic. Even his skin is metallic. His face was fucking burned at the beginning of this. Like, the amount of reality they showed in the humanity of Apocalypse's injuries at the start of this issue, all the way up through the sadness he expresses through his broken body, that's something that I, as a fan of comics, love, but I, as an aspiring artist, can't even fathom how to put into detail. Yeah, Mahmoud Asrar absolutely kills it on this. Um, again, like I, there's just the one vertical panel on... Um, if this is 22 pages, you know, probably page 21 here, I'm assuming the second to last page with it's, it's body language. Like it's not even, there's so little to the facial expression because the head is sunk low, but it's the shoulders and the body language and the shadow over the face. Like it is so well done. Like it conveys depth of emotion in a way that, yeah, like I would never, like I'm happy when, you know, the parts are in proportion. Um, Look at that hand not being on that face. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, he's like, you can see tension in the shoulders and like carrying burdens in his posture. Like that's just a ridiculous talent. Asrar was so good in this issue. I, I think the trade from Lionel Francis U to Mahmoud Asrar has been such a seamless transition at this point. I think back to Lionel Francis U's very Boris Karloff interpretation of Apocalypse's sadness, and to see that as far as communicable sadness in a in a visual interpretation is concerned, you know, I think both of them are really just hitting it out of heart. Wow, you know, I've been a U fan since, ironically, right after 
Apocalypse the Twelve. I've been a U fan since the days of Chris Claremont's Revolution in uh, 2000, which was my coming into comics in a lot of ways. I'd been reading my dad's comics before that, but that was the first time I was like, Dad, I'd like to read the new stuff. And I got in right at Apocalypse the Twelve. I didn't really understand any of it. But then I was collecting from Revolution to New X-Men, and you really stuck out to me as somebody that was special and was going to like be in my heart forever. And... I didn't even realize that we had switched artists because I loved the art so much here. And I've even heard you say the creative credits multiple times. Ain't that just the way. That's a really beautiful tribute to how seamlessly John Hickman knows how to get the best out of his artists, not to make it about the writer, but you know, frequently I get frustrated when a writer doesn't understand how to write to an artist's strengths. If that artist is not a facial close-up artist, don't have them draw fucking facial close-ups. If that artist is a facial close-up artist, please don't have them draw giant battle sequences. Right? It, you know, like play to your strengths and Hickman so consistently plays to the strengths of his art team that it's hard to imagine how his scripting process goes. And the other thing is, is all, you know, every one of these guys on the art team, with the exception of, you know, one who we don't even have to say, are clearly like working off of each other's, like the way that they're changing in scenes, the way that they're styling or drawing out, like you can see them adjusting their style to match, you know, say R.B. Silva's Krakoa, you know, when you're going to do something, you know, that is more um, botanical. The deafness of Jamie from the pages of Hellions into the pages of Excalibur with the sinister cape and how yeah. that is not how we're used to seeing Jamie necessarily shown, not just that it's a different you know side item, but specifically it's a transformative experience to see him in this new form where I, I don't know that I would put a sinister style cape in an Excalibur style book. Exactly. Yes. Marcus II is another one. But no, you can see them when they're crossing over into each other's world. You can see them really taking from each other. And it makes a lot of it much more seamless. A great example is, you know, whenever you see someone like a colorist really changing their scheme. So like on some of the issues where uh, the Wolverine issues were a great example because the colorist on there very specifically, and I don't remember his name right now, I have it written somewhere around here, but the Wolverine and X-Force two-parter, when they switched back to Krakoa, those colors were nothing like what they were the rest of the issue. Like, the colorist was using very specific tones and very specific emotional tones with uh, a lot of reds and oranges in some scenes and purples in the other, like, but then went completely to matching Marte Gracia's color style for Wolverine getting back to Krakoa. Like going clearly against what was his style and the tones he was using for the whole rest of the book to make something that felt Krakoan in the way he colored it. X-Men number 13 brought us to almost the halfway point of the crossover Ten of Swords, and still we aren't seeing a lot of action, still we're seeing a lot of Apocalypse narrating and controlling the narrative. We saw a major retcon of the character, which was received mixed, it seems, amongst us. Uh, I, 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 I want to start seeing some action soon, and I, I already know the events, of course, of Stasis, so it, it's, it's hard not to speculate on what's to come. How about you, Josh? What do you want to see happen in the pages of X of Swords as we go forward from X-Men 13? One of the things uh, that we didn't get as much here, although we did get a real nice look and a, 
uh, probably our best deal yet for Genesis. Apocalypse is if we're going to call her his wife or ex-wife. But the the Arakan sword bearers have shown themselves in the glimpses we've gotten to be fascinating characters, able to carry the story for stretches at a time on their own. Like I know moving forward, there are bits of this I am very much looking forward to featuring Red Root, featuring Solemn. I think we're all interested in seeing Pog Your Pog on a couple pages. Apocalypse and Genesis. I said it when we did the free comic book day one and we were talking about the tarot cards. But man, like there is a description of divorce. Like I feel like a big major, major metaphor. And one of the things we're going to be looking at here is like the damage from divorce that we see with Apocalypse and Genesis as we see that play out over the second half. And I think it's going to hurt and just be so good at the same. <laughs> I hope so. I want that hurt to hurt good. I also yeah. noted for like half a second, that scene where Apocalypse is like, what do you people want? And they're all talking everything out. There's 12 people in that scene. I don't know why that seems significant. And also that one of them wears a helmet that controls their mind and like covers their face. I don't know why that seems significant, but the idea that, Somebody wearing the Mask of Annihilation sort of represents Cerebro in the helmet, and then the other 12 members of the council. There's just, I'm looking for more symmetry between Arako and Krakoa, even if that seems maybe a little bit on the nose. I, I don't mind some on-the-nose symmetry when the noses are the noses of the X-Men, you know, Ziz? Hickman loves him some symmetry. He does. He does. That's why he always loves to write two books at once. For real. He, this way he can and always have them balanced. The For me, like, I felt Doug was out of place early on in this. And what we saw, you know, jumping ahead just for a sec, just what we saw of Red Root, getting to see just even a page of Red Root made me so happy Doug was in this all of a sudden. Because the symmetry and the parallels and just what we can get from those two characters feels it's so exciting. And until we come back to explore that excitement, that very palpable excitement now that we really are upon the battle of Ten of Swords. Josh, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L. And check in every Monday at Asleep at the W-E-I-L dot com for our weekly X-Men back issue recap. Maddie, where can we find you? Uh, as always, you guys can find me over on Instagram at, at the basically covetous man. Check in whenever or don't. Hey, Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N on Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to check out the website for more information about this awesome show, guys. Thank you so much.